If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Hey, everybody. Today, Rado talks through episode nine of his podcast. And today, I am going to be talking about 20 or so new games of interest that have popped up in the last month or so. I'll be doing some more Q&A. And I think the lion's share of this episode will be devoted to catching up on my top tens. Because I've done several top ten videos now where I'm supposed to do follow-ups on those discussions in the podcast. And I just haven't been doing it because so many other crazy topics have come up. But this time, it's just going to be very straightforward. So let's jump right into it, starting with some new games of interest right after this. Okay, folks, welcome back. Let's start talking about games of interest. And as always, you can find this list at my guild. You go to guild.rado.com, and one of the top links at the top of the page is going to be 2016 Games of Interest. I am constantly keeping this geek list up to date. At least once a week, I will generally add a few new games that I have discovered in my trawling of the internet. And any games that I find that, from what I've read, either or the pedigree of the designer or, in some cases, the pedigree of the publisher, if I'm fairly confident that Jen and I will enjoy playing it, I put it on the list. So it's just kind of a nice little service. I mostly do it for myself, but, heck, maybe it's interesting and useful for you guys. But anyway, let's start talking about the games, not the list that contains the game. So first up this month, we've got Aeon's End, which is from Action Phase Games. The guys who kind of really have overnight become a big, big success based on their their first big title, Heroes Wanted, which was, I believe, a pretty big monster hit for them. And with good reason. It's a wonderful, wonderful superhero game. A lot of fun. Jen, I enjoy it quite a bit. And they've got, I think 2016 is going to be their year. They are going to have quite a few games that are either coming out or on Kickstarter or a combination of both. First one is Aeon's End. And I actually got to play a few rounds of this at BGGCon last year. I sat down with them. And also, I got to take a look at the next game from theirs I'm about to talk about, Retreat to Darkmoor. Both games from Action Phase Games. I've played both of them a little bit, and they're both very cool. Aeon's End is a cooperative fantasy deck builder. And, you know, there have been other ones, other games of this ilk, but this is a game... That you know is very very you know true to it. it. It's very much a deck builder. It's it's not like I don't know Foe Hunter or or Lord of the Rings the card game. You know these kind of fantasy cooperative card games that maybe have a little bit of deck building. This is a, a you know a, a very steady, constantly building up your deck, making it stronger, doing stuff. But it's also a game that is very very rich and very complex, like. Lord of the Rings, a card game, or Mistfall, or something like that. But unlike most of these really heavy fantasy card games, this one's a straight-up uh, deck builder. And I th- um, and it really strongly features really interlocked cooperation between players because the uh, the invading horde 
They come at you fast and hard, and players have to be very, very smart. It's a very tactically challenging game. And I only got to play a couple rounds, but I immediately thought, yeah, this is fun. This is something Jen and I would enjoy. So that's all I got to say about Aeon's End. The other one uh, that I'm talking about from Action Phase this month, Retreat to Darkmoor, is a very clever game. I didn't actually get to see Final Art. I don't know if it's going to be serious or silly. I would imagine it's going to be kind of silly. It's another fantasy game. And in this one, the the situation is that we are all dark overlords. And we've sent off our minions to, you know, sack the castle and all that. But turns out there were very tough heroes there. And all our minions are have been sent scrambling and are running for their lives. They are retreating to Darkmoor. But there are only a certain number of entrances into our dark lair. And so they're all basically queuing up and trying to jostle their way to the front of the line to be able to get to safety. And at the back of the line, there were actually, if I recall, I think there were three lines. Maybe there were four. But basically, there's these cues that all of our minions, my minions and your minions, are, are getting in, and the minions all have special powers that let them jump to the head or you know push other people around or move for, jump from one queue to another and all this kind of stuff. At the end of the queues, the heroes have shown up, and they are systematically taking out our minions one by one. And so there's this constant pressure, and uh, you know, it, it, was, it was a really, really clever game. Not quite any, like anything I'd seen before. And again, it was very, very clever, very uh, entertaining. I enjoyed my little bit of time I got with that at BGCon. So I'm definitely excited to see more about Retreat to Darkmoor. Now, let's move away from action phase games for a bit and talk about, well, Fight for Olympus. When I put it on my geek list, I didn't know much about it, other than obviously, you put Olympus in the title, you know it's going to be like ancient Greek pantheon deities and whatnot. Fair enough. So that gives you a little bit of an idea of the theme, if you're fighting for Olympus. But I didn't really know anything about the game, other than it was from designer Matthias Kramer, who is very firmly in my top 10 favorite game designers of all time. So anytime he does anything, I'm instantly interested. And so I just kind of put it on the on the list, not knowing anything. Now, I am thinking at this point about taking it off the list because I have now discovered that it is a, what would you call it, a battle line type game where it, it's two players dueling against each other. I have my side of the line and I am playing cards and trying to get them in the right position so that I can do the most damage to your cards. And basically, it's just a big old brawl. Now, I'm sure it's going to be a very well-designed one. I believe the core central mechanism of it is one of my favorites. I have a handful of cards. To play this card, I have to sacrifice other cards. Which ones do I sacrifice to play? That always works. That's always excellent. Matthias Kramer is a brilliant designer he always makes excellent designs my only hesitance now is it's definitely the kind of game jen and i generally don't like to play a face off against each other and try to pound each other into the dirt so i don't know i'm really torn on this but i think for now i'm going to leave it on the list until i actually finally get to see some rules and find out just how in your face it is fight for olympus And then moving on to the next one. Actually, this next one doesn't have an entry in Board Game Geek yet. And I don't know why. People have known about this game for a couple of years. And it's pretty widely rumored that this is the year it's finally going to be re-released. Even though we've been seeing screenshots of it from like little conventions in Europe for, like I said, literally a couple of years now. It is called Oracle of Delphi. And it is from designer Stefan Feld. And it is his next big heavyweight meaty euro last one he did was the excellent 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 um oh all i can think of now is the little card game version of it 
Oh, I cannot think of the name. Oh, Aquasphere, Aquasphere, which was a very, very cool game. That was, and that was right after Bora Bora, another really great game. And finally, he's, he's kind of taken a break. Where has he been? Well, I guess he's been putting the finishing touches on Oracle of Delphi, which, you know, mostly we don't really know that much, even though there's been a lot of information floating around for a while. I mean, and you've seen some screenshots. It has a modular board. It is another ancient Grecian deity-filled fantasy environment and it is a game where players are running around fighting monsters and building temples to the gods and all that which you know that doesn't sound like a theme that you would normally expect from Steffenfeld but what I fully expect this to be is the kind of you know the perfect storm game for me and Jen because we love big epic adventures we love the kind of thematic content you normally get in an Ameritrash game but we generally don't like that kind of gameplay we love Steffenfeld's kind of gameplay the more dry, cerebral, thinky, brain-burny Euros. So anytime you've got a brain-burny, thinky, Steffenfeld-type Euro that's set in a game of high fantasy and adventure, oh my gosh, sign me up. I cannot wait. Even though it's not in, it, it still, to this day, isn't listed as an entry in Board Game Geek. I don't know why. So it's kind of hard to look it up. But I, I am anxiously awaiting Oracle of Delphi. And now let's continue with Steffenfeld. Uh, he's got something else up his sleeve this year. Castles of Burgundy, the card game. And in fact, actually, just this week, just in the last week, there has been um, Eric Martin, the you know head reporter for Board Game Geek. He's at the Nuremberg Toy Fair, and they they finally rolled it out, and they were doing demos of it, and you could see it. Uh, Eric has actually filmed a video of it. I have not watched that video yet, because honestly, I don't care. <laughs> because Castles of Burgundy is my favorite Steffenfeld design to date. It is, if I did a top 10 Steffenfeld games, there's no doubt it would be at the number one spot. It is just about perfect as a game. I love it to death. So if he is revisiting the ideas of that game and repurposing them into a card game, forget about it. It is a must-have. This is easily, um, you know, if I had known when I made my top 10 most anticipated games of the year, this would have been in my top two or three easily. Um, I can't wait. I should go watch the Eric Martin video because I'm sure it's excellent. He does excellent work. But honestly, like I said, I don't need to. I know, sight unseen, it's going to be amazing. And so that's why it's on the list, Castles of Burgundy, the card game. Now, moving on, here is another game that for whatever reason the developer has decided not to actually put any information about it on BoardGameGeek. I have no idea why publishers want to keep this information secret. It's from publisher Pleasant Company, I believe is their name, and previously they have done a game called Ancient Terrible Things, which was an excellent, excellent, excellent Yahtzee-style strategy adventure game. And it was actually a horror setting, of all things, a Cthulhu-esque horror setting, which is sort of the thing that my wife would hate normally, but she loved Ancient Terrible Things because the gameplay, the Yahtzee-ish dice-rolling gameplay, although it's not pure Yahtzee, it does some really cool, interesting stuff. You can see my run-through for it. It's an excellent game, a wonderful game. And um, this year, they're going to be bringing out a follow-up to it called Grim Heroes, which my understanding is it's taking the ideas of Ancient Terrible Things, but bringing it into a fantasy milieu, and I'm sure updating it and coming up with new interesting twists and turns. That's all I know. Why is that all I know? Why aren't the publishers putting tons of information on BoardGameGeek so that I could get really excited about it well i don't know i it best kept secrets for whatever reason 
Um, it's never too early to start drumming up interest and excitement for your games. Uh, but I can't wait to find out more when eventually news of it does come to uh, to to wider audience. But anyway, I'm definitely excited. Cannot wait to learn a little bit more about Grim Heroes. Next up, we've got the Brettspiel Easter Bastic. And uh, you may remember in December... I put Jen and I put out 24 videos of counting down the 24 days of the Brettsfield Advent Calendar, where every day you open up this Advent Calendar, you got another promo out. Well, they are back again. Frosted Games is doing the same basic trick now, leading up to Easter. I believe there, instead of 24, there are eight promos in this thing. I guess they all come in Easter eggs or something like that. I'm really not quite certain. I haven't seen any actual real pictures. But that was an awesome thing. I assume this will be awesome as well. I love promos. There were a lot of really awesome promos in the last one. So it'll be interesting to see what comes in the Easter basket. And then moving on. Let's see. This is a game that I expect will be going on to Kickstarter this year. The It is a sequel to a game that was on Kickstarter last year and has now come out. It is available at retail. It's called Dale of Merchants. And if you saw my run-through for that when it was on Kickstarter, Jen and I were really tickled pink. We thought it was an excellent deck builder game. Really wonderful, phenomenal gameplay. Great, great fun game of building up your deck but then having to tear it apart. And so the designer is bringing out a sequel, or you know, a standalone sequel slash expansion, kind of like you know, say Dominion Intrigue, where you can buy the original Dales of Merchant, or you can buy Dale, Dale of Merchant Two. I don't know if that's going to be its ultimate title. Either one is a standalone, but you can mix and match the two together. So we love the basic. More cards is going to make it even better. Phenomenal. Dale of Merchants 2. Hopefully, it'll be going on Kickstarter. Hopefully, they'll send me a prototype because I would look forward to doing another run-through for it because we like the original so much. Then, moving on to the next game on the list. This is a really interesting one. And again, don't know much about it yet, but I am excited for one reason. Designer Carl Chuddock. Teaming up with Stronghold Games, one of the best publishers in the industry, they make really, really high-quality stuff, Carl Chuddock makes really outside-the-box, crazy card game designs that are just unlike anything else out there. Uh, you know, He is the man behind you know, maybe the best modern designer card game there is, Glory to Rome, and now he's putting out a new one called Bear Valley, which... Right off the bat, that feels like a crazy extreme departure for him because his all his other games are definitely much more grounded in kind of geeky subject matter, like you know, building up or board game geek subject matter, I should say, building up ancient Rome and glory to Rome, you know, 4X style outer space civilization stuff with impulse or gosh, what was the other one? Civilization um, uh, building in innovation. But now he's making a game that is all about basically surviving in the woods filled with bears. Bears! Da bears. They'll be coming for you. And I can only imagine it's going to be another very, very interesting, tricky, surprising, and out-of-the-box card game experience, but with a wonderful theme. This is a very cool, fresh, and interesting theme. And I can only hope the theme would promise that the game isn't too terribly cutthroat, because he does have a bit of a tendency in his designs to be just a little bit, you know, to put players 
ripping each other apart a bit more than Jan and I like, which is a shame because we love his design so much, but they're usually a, just a little bit too mean-spirited. Hopefully, um, this is more about just trying to survive and less about trying to eat each other in Bear Valley, which, um, you know, and there, there's a there's a, a box cover. It looks, the box cover art looks great. I mean, I, I'm, I'm even if it wasn't Carl Shuddock, I have to admit, I'd be very strongly attracted to the theme. That sounds very, very cool. Um, Jen loves survival shows like um, Naked and Afraid, and when we both love Survivor, and oh, what was that one that, um, Alone, and, you know, I mean, so a game that basically features, uh, you know, uh, Extreme Alaska Adventures, she loves these kind of things. So this is a game that's right up her alley theme we both love the gameplay this guy puts together stronghold makes fantastic phenomenal productions and they make really good decisions about the game they publish so all signs are good for bear valley and then moving on to another animal themed game we've got survival frogs of southeastern australia and i'll be honest i'm taking a bit of a punt here strictly speaking i don't know if i should put this game on this geek list because again i put this i put games on this geek list that i'm very confident that jen and i will enjoy playing i don't always get it right but you know 90 percent of the games that i learn about i don't put on this list and i'm really thinking maybe i'm jumping the gun here a little bit but man i find the idea of this game so charming or several things about the idea of this game here, here's the crux of it. This is a cooperative card game that kind of is sort of like Hanabi in that um, you know, you're very, very limited in what you can actually communicate with your teammates. But unlike Hanabi, where you cannot see your hand of cards and other people have to give you clues, in this game... You um you can't see I can see what's in my hand of cards, but I cannot see what's in your hand of cards like a normal game. But I don't play cards from my hand. I play cards from your hand. So I have to figure out what is in your hand of cards and pick the right cards from your hand to basically allow us all to cooperatively help the frogs of southeastern Australia survive. So it's basically reverse Hanabi. That sounds cool. Maybe it'll be cool, maybe it won't. Like I said, I'm taking a bit of a gamble. Maybe it really won't be that interesting relative to Hanabi. I don't know. But there's something else I find incredibly charming about this game. It was apparently designed by a classroom of, of uh, I don't know, third graders, fourth graders of young children as a project to basically raise awareness about the plight of the survival of frogs in southeastern Australia. So... I like it just for that reason. I mean, that, that, that just sounds really, really cool. Now, that's a red flag because who knows how well a, a classroom of young children is going to actually do when they're trying to design an interesting card game. It might be terrible. I don't know. But, I mean, it just the whole thing is so charming. And it has really great potential because that's a really good elevator pitch. You know, take the ideas of a knobby and flip them on their head. It could be really cool. I don't know. I am definitely interested in survival frogs of southeastern Australia. And now, let's move on to my third animal-themed game in a row, Agility, which is a game where players are training um, dogs to compete in agility courses at dog shows. I've already done a run-through for this last year when it was on Kickstarter. This is the follow-up design to the excellent Morels, the same designer, Brent Povis. This is his second, this is his sophomore outing. It's a great theme. Jen and I have already played it. The gameplay was great. It's going to be coming out in retail this year because it had a successful Kickstarter. Can't wait. That's all you need to say. Agility. You can go watch my run-through to learn more if you want. 
then. Okay, I think it looks like, yeah, we're getting away from animals for a while, although I think there might be some more animals coming up here. Let's talk about Nitwit, which is a new design from Matt Leacock, the master of pandemic, one of my favorite designers of all time. And this is really interesting to me because I have been railing for years that while I think Matt keeps on putting out great game after great game, you know, um, Pandemic the Cure and the Thunderbirds game, but he really does seem like he's kind of in a cooperative rut, just kind of leveraging the pandemic formula over and over and over again, often to very good effect. I mean, Forbidden Desert is amazeballs. But every time he puts out another cooperative game that seems like another take on what he has already mastered, the, the pandemic formula... I am always finding myself hoping he will break out and do something different, like he did years ago when he made his follow-up to Pandemic roll through the ages, which was an excellent, excellent Civilization Yahtzee game. Phenomenal game. We still own it. We love it. So I know he can do something other than cooperative, Pandemic-inspired gameplay. And so no one is more pleased than me to, find, to hear about Nitwit, which apparently is some kind of social party game. So that makes me worried because social party games are rarely, rarely, rarely any good with two. But the only one in recent years that you know Jen and I have found works really well is Codenames from CGE. Now, Nitwit officially supports two players. So I'm going to give it a try because I feel like I've got to after complaining at, at such great length um, you know, over... Um, Matt not breaking out. He's finally breaking out, so I feel like I owe it to him to give it a try. But I am a bit nervous. We'll see what Nitwit is all about this year. Now, let's continue on to Turia. T-O-U-R-I-A. And this is another game from the husband and wife design team of Inca and Marcus Brand. Although my understanding is Inca does most of the design and Marcus does most of the testing. So that's cool right off the bat that you've got a very well-respected and prolific female board game designer. This is her latest game. But again, you know, they, they are a design team, so this is their latest game. And, um, you know, Village was phenomenal. Murano was stellar. So, oh, oh and last year, when they did the, ex the Invasion expansion for Orléans, that was amazeballs, made my top 10 expansions of all time. So these two... When they get together and they put out a design, it's great. So I'm interest, interest, interested immediately. Now, what this game is about, I don't know. Uh, when I put it on the list, there was almost nothing about it. I just put it on the list because... Let me go on ahead and just look. Let's see if there's anything that's now... Okay. Hey! Okay, there's some inf information. It's There's a group of bold adventurers who are pitting themselves against dragons, digging up gins in the haunted mines of the country, to um, trying to make good deals from time to time, since the father of the bride demands an appropriate price for the daughter's hand in marriage. Dancing towers show the heroes the way. Uh, brave women, women, men and women go from one adventure to the next. Brave women, of course. If we've forgotten to mention that there's a handsome prince who is also of marrying, marrying age. Okay, that sounds cool. That sounds delightful. I'm in. The box art looks nice. But more than anything else, Inca and Marcus, they have produced some phenomenal designs. So I'm always on board for them with Turia. 
Next up, we have uh, Medici, which is a classic Reiner Knizia game of um, good sh- trading. And, you know, it's been out forever. I don't know when it came out. This is going to be the third edition of the game. In fact, I believe it's on Kickstarter right now if you want to back it. And what's interesting is after, you know, gosh, it's been, it, must, it must be a 20-year-old design or something like that. Kanitia, Reiner Kanitia, has finally revisited it and come up with two-player rules. It's been one I've always been interested in because, to be honest, Jen and I, we own and like the kind of offshoot of this um, what is it? Uh, Medici versus Strazi, which is a kind of a two-player version of Medici. So maybe some of the design elements of that are making it into its big brother. I don't know. I would definitely like to find out because Reiner Kanichi is an amazing designer, and this is him revisiting one of his most um, well-loved, time-tested designs, introducing two-player gameplay, and if all that wasn't enough, the game's getting a complete graphical overhaul with new art from Vincent Dutrait, or Vincent Dutrois, who is easily one of the best artists working in board games. He's the guy who did the art for the excellent Lewis and Clark. I mean, it just it is, his art is phenomenal. It is dreamy and evocative. You just lose yourself in it. So, I mean, this is firing on all cylinders. This sounds absolutely fantastic, Medici. Like I said, on Kickstarter right now. Okay, next up, we've got another game that I actually did a run-through for. It's weird. I actually did a run-through for this last year because they sent me the prototype but it didn't show up in time during the Kickstarter campaign. So, you know, it showed up late, and then I asked them, well, hey, what do you want me to do? And they said, well, we wouldn't mind if you'd uh, do a run-through for it anyway because we're going to be doing pre-orders for it soon. And I did a run-through for it back in, I think, October or November of last year. But then they said, oh, wait, we're not doing pre-orders till January. So I basically sat on this run-through for whatever it is, four months, and I only recently put it up and um, because the game is now available for pre-order because it's going to be coming out in retail this year, and it is an amazing game. It's called Spirit Island, and this is a game where it's a cooperative game where players take on the roles of island protective spirits, the, the spirit of water or the spirit of the, of the earth or the spirit of the air. And depending on what spirit you are, you have a deck of cards that gives you all kinds of special abilities. And you can deck build over the course of the game to get more and more cards, more special abilities. And what do you use these special abilities for? To protect the island from invaders. Um, not evil, plundering pirates or warlords or anything like that, but just, you know... Um, the settlers, colonizers. This game is basically Settlers of Catan, where the settlers are the bad guys and the island is the good guys. And we take on the spirits of the island trying to scare the settlers of Catan away. It was it was really, really good gameplay. Jen and I enjoyed playing the prototype quite a bit. The art looks like it's going to be great. It's really outside the box, very much unlike other cooperative games Really nice. You can check out my run-through because I finally, after months of keeping it secret, I've been able to release it. And it looks, I mean, I, I think it's going to be a phenomenal game when it finally comes out, Spirit Island. Next up, ooh, now we're getting into some recent, very exciting announcements. Um, you know, because we've finally, you know, coming, uh, you know, at the, at the end of January and February, we're starting to hear publishers talk about the big games that are going to be coming out this year. And so several of them were announced back-to-back within a few days of each other. First up, First Martians, Adventures on the Red Planet. And this is a cooperative game from Ignacy Travchek, uh, Travchek. And it, this is basically 
effectively his spiritual sequel to Robinson Crusoe Adventures on the Cursed Island, which a lot of people know is an immensely popular, immensely well-liked, well-respected, cooperative game of survival on an island. Basically, you know, Robinson Crusoe trying to deal with a whole bunch of different scenarios. It was a very, very well-designed game. And, um, you know, I respected the hell out of it. It wasn't a good fit for me and Jen. For Jen, because it was too high pressure. For me, because the, you know, the storytelling elements were maybe just uh, took a little bit too much of uh, or too much in the foreground compared to the actual decisions the players make. Um, so we we liked it but didn't love it. And this is years later now. Gosh, what, it must be three years, four years since uh, Robinson Crusoe came out? He's basically giving us, like I said, kind of the sequel, but instead of being on a deserted island, how about a deserted planet? Uh, this is, I believe, going to be kind of a hard science-inspired you know, Martian colonization game where we're trying to survive. I mean, think, you know, Matt Damon in The Martian, you know, that big hit movie from last year, which was amazing, by the way, absolutely phenomenal, one of the best movies of the year. And so now we've got a whole themed, um, you know, survival cooperative game on that. So the theme and setting is great. The designer pedigree is second to none. The history of the design is really, really top notch. And if all that weren't enough, apparently the game is going to be app driven. That you, I think it's optional, but there will be a companion app available for this game that will increase the immersion and the playability of it even more. As you know from my run-throughs of XCOM and Alchemist, I love the idea of digital integration into board games. makes me so excited. So I am super, super stoked for First Martians. Apparently, we'll be learning more about it at the Gamma Trade Show in March, which, by the way, I'm going to be at. Surprise! That's going to be awesome. So hopefully, I'll be getting some hands-on time with it there. Can't wait to learn more. First Martians, Adventures on the Red Planet. But if that was exciting... Maybe even more exciting is Pandemic Reign of Cthulhu, Cthulhu, which I am super duper excited for. And it's weird. I mean, ever since, you know, this got announced just a week or so ago. And I don't know, it, it's ridiculous to me. All the controversy has come. So many people are saying, oh, well, there's Pandemic jumping the shark. Um, you know, total sellout. Do you really have to slap Cthulhu on everything? Matt Leacock is a rotten, you know, he, he sold his soul and Pandemic soul to make a little money. And that's just ridiculous. Here's the thing. Um, I can't talk too terribly much about this, but at BGGCon last year, I got to spend almost a couple of hours just hanging out with Matt Leacock. He was very gracious for this time. We talked about a whole bunch of stuff. And and one of the things he told me about and that I actually got to play is he apparently he enjoyed working with Rob Davio on Pandemic Legacy so much. He is looking to do more design um, joints with other designers, work with other designers to do new stuff. And Pandemic Reign of Cthulhu is the first in a line of games where he is going to be teaming up with other designers. In this case, it's designer Chuck Yeager who made Rise of Cthulhu. So if you are teaming up with a designer who made Rise of Cthulhu, what a surprise that Cthulhu Lovecraftian horror elements might work their way in. Go figure. This is not, I mean, this is, this, this is not just some blatant cash grab. This is a natural, organic um, evolution. He works with Rob Davio. The, the master of legacy. So legacy worked its way into pandemic. Nobody complained about that. He works with Chuck Yeager, a Cthulhu designer. So Cthulhu works its way into pandemic. And suddenly everybody starts complaining. I don't get it. I think it's great, particularly because I 
I got to see, I got to test another game that is the result of him collaborating with a different designer. And I thought that game had, well, you know, it was really early, but it was really, really cool. And it, considering how cool that was, I think this has the potential to be even cooler. I'm super stoked for it. I love Pandemic. I love coming up with new and interesting twists on the gameplay. This is definitely going to offer that a new setting. It's going to be great. Pandemic, Rise of Cthulhu, and you know what? Jen just got back from shopping. So I think we're going to have to take a break there for a second, folks, because I'm probably going to have to help bring in some groceries. In fact, yep, I can see a big bag of chicken feed. Those are heavy. Um, So we're going to be right back with the rest of this list. Hold on. Okay, everybody, the uh, chickens have gotten their sunflower seeds. They're very happily pecking away now, and we can get back to these games of interest. So next up on the list was a big surprise to everybody. I mean, I guess maybe we shouldn't be surprised. Maybe we should have known better, but still... It's good to be surprised in life by something like Dominion Empires, which is the latest expansion for Dominion. This is the second expansion for Dominion that was never supposed to happen because originally it was said there was only going to be a finite number of them, but then everybody was surprised last year when, oh, Dominion Adventurers came out, and now Dominion Empires is coming out. And I'm sure we'll get it. I'm sure we'll love it, because Dominion has never gotten old or tired for us, in large part because there's just constantly new, interesting stuff getting introduced. And it's amazing how cleverly Donald X Vaccarino can keep finding new and interesting things to do within the structure of a deck builder. But he does, somehow. The man, my hat's off to him. My biggest problem with this is, I don't know what I'm going to do space-wise, because all of my stuff barely fits in... The I've got basically three boxes of Dominion. One normal size, and then two smaller size. And they're all in. They're all... Well, I don't sleeve the cards, but I sleeve the individual groups, so it's easy to basically make a random collection of Dominion stuff. Man, I'm going to have to rejig everything again. Stupid Dominion empires. Rio Grande, come on. Give us a break. Re- release an official Dominion big box box that, carry, that holds all this stuff in one, because this is just getting crazy, yo. So anyway, though, Dominion Empires, I'm sure it'll be great. Next up, oh, we're almost done with the list, actually. Gluk Alf das Grosse Kartenspiel, which could also be called Colbaron the Card Game. Or the big card game, I guess, because Grosse is big. Grosse is big, isn't it? Grosse, yeah. <clears throat> so, Kramer and Kiesling, together again. Man, these guys can do no wrong. And I've already done a run-through for Gluk Alf, or Colbaron as it was called. And that was a lovely, lovely coal mining simulation. Had a really, really cool central element of a sliding elevator that went up and down as you transported your goods from the mines and you got them up to the surface. You could sell them and stuff like that. All that stuff worked great. And heck, honestly... I can imagine a card game version of that right off the bat with, um, you know, laying out cards. I wonder if that's how it's going to be. Honestly, I don't know. I don't need to know. Much like I was talking about earlier when Stefan Feld says, hey, I've got a new game coming out. There. When Kramer and Kiesling say the same thing, I'm there. And so, Glukauftas, Grosik Kartenspiel, I'm sure is going to be great. Next up, Istanbul. Brief und Siegel. Um, which I... I think I looked it up, and Brief is like postage or like postal, so I would assume this is a new expansion for Istanbul that introduces, well, apparently it introduces quite a bit of stuff, and I think it's getting to the point now where you can randomly, I'm, I'm hoping anyway, that you can randomly uh, create a new marketplace as opposed to making the marketplace even bigger. I mean, you know, the, the last expansion, 
Oh, what is it called? I can't think of the last expansion. I need to be doing a run-through for it pretty soon, now that I think about it. But that one, basically what it introduced four new tiles, and so it just increased the entire marketplace and made it bigger. I hope this one doesn't make it even bigger, and instead we can start mixing and matching and take some things out and put other stuff in. But whatever, Istanbul is great. It definitely deserved its Kennerspiel win a few years ago. Its expansion was great, and I'm assuming the next expansion will be great. Istanbul, Brief und Siegel. And, oh, last one, okay. Heir to the Pharaoh. You know, H-E-I-R, you know, not heir, A-I-R-E, but H-E-I-R. The Heir to the Pharaoh. And this is from designer Alf Siegert. And Alf Siegert, he is an interesting guy. All of his designs are really quirky. I think quirky is the best um, term. You know, the uh, Road to Canterbury, where you were playing a... Uh, a character from the Canterbury Tales, peddling pardons to sinners, and um, you know, Fantastica, the deck builder where you travel through kind of fairy tale fantasy dreams armed only with a spoon. And um, you know, his games, they're always clever, they're always well designed, and they're always just interesting thematically. I mean, he does not go with you know the standard. Heck, he did a Viking game years ago, but um, you know, cast the Vikings as trolls. Troll Hollow was an excellent game too. And so his latest game, Heir to the Pharaoh, I think this might be his most quirky, offbeat subject matter yet. Because in this game, it's a two-player only game, apparently, which is great for me and Jen. One player plays the Egyptian dog god Anubis, and the other player takes on the role of the Egyptian cat god, who I don't know. I know Anubis is the dog. I don't remember what the cat is. Let me see if I can look it up here really quick, because I want to get this right. This is important. Um, oh, the, the, the feline goddess Bast, or the canine god Anubis. And so, it's dogs versus cats in ancient Egypt, but dog god and cat god versus, you know, you know facing off against each other in ancient Egypt as both players are vying for the affections of the pharaoh. Now, that's all I know. I don't even know what that means. That just sounds crazy. But, like I said, Alf puts together good games, and uh, this sounds like an awesome theme. It's almost kind of just custom-made for me and Jen, although I imagine we're going to fight over who gets to be the dog god. Nope, apparently Jen has already decided she gets to be Anubis no matter what. Um, we'll see. Um, we'll flip for it or something. But anyway, heir to the pharaoh. I'm looking forward to learning more. There's very little information about it now, but... It just that sounds charming as all get out. And there you go, folks. That was a month's worth of new and interesting games for 2016. Check back next podcast. I'm sure I'll have another month's worth. But for now, it's time to move on to the Q&A because Jen is back. I'll get her mic'd up and we'll start answering your questions right after this. Okay, everybody, it's question and answer time. Hi, honey pie. Hello, my love. Are you prepared to answer some questions? Yes. I Well, hopefully. I'm sitting here. All right. That's all you <laughs> offer is to sit here and maybe pipe in if the mood strikes you. If, there, if I have something that I can offer and all contribute. Right. Yes. Well, I don't think you'll be able to help. Well, actually, you could do this first one. You could answer the first one. This is actually a holdover. Uh, last month, Greg, he had like seven questions, and he was nice. One of his questions he asked, could you... Could you tell the Nintendo story in the next Rotto runs through? Oh. And I believe at that point I said, you got it. I'll do it in the next one. That's not <laughs> what he actually meant. He meant the last one, but we've dodged it, and now we have to tell a Nintendo story. Would you like to tell a Nintendo story, honey? I don't think you've ever told it. Heck, maybe you'd tell it completely differently than me. I think you, why don't you tell it, and I'll interject if you forget anything important. All right. All right. It's your story. 
Sit right back and I'll tell you a tale, a tale of a fateful trip that started from that Pacific Northwest port aboard. All right, I'll stop the Gilligan's Island. Bumpham ship. There you go. Okay. Um, who's the mate? And who's uh, the skipper brave and true? Well, this is right. your story. I'll be yes, the okay. Mate. I will be All your Gilligan. Right. I don't even know why we're going down that road. <laughs> so, okay, yeah. In college at the University of Washington, where Jen and I met, oops, I just dropped my microphone. I had a part-time job as a mailman. And to this day, I would say mailman is probably the best job I've ever had in my life, or certainly the one I enjoyed the most. I loved being outdoors. I was in really great shape, you know, trudging up hills every day, delivering mail. It was good. I, I really liked it. But through an, un an unfortunate series of events, I ended up getting a reckless driving citation, which was Total bullcrap. It was not my fault at all. The cop was incredibly biased. It was a really, I mean, I could show you the, the accident report and prove, look, this is impossible. It literally, what is being said here could not have happened. I am being set up. This is totally unfair. I was a young man, um, full of the vim and vigor back then, and I was very angry at the time. But anyway, so while I loved my part-time job delivering the mail, once I lost my driver's license because <laughs> of my reckless driving citation, I couldn't keep delivering the mail very effectively. Although it's interesting, I was so good at it, and they liked me so much, they let me continue to do it for like another six months, but only on scooter. Uh, because Jen had a 50cc scooter that didn't qualify as an actual motor vehicle, so I didn't need a license to drive that. So for a few months, I was delivering mail on scooter, which was awesome, in between classes and whatnot. But anyway, I couldn't keep being a mailman as much as I loved it, and so I had to find another job. And a lot of students at the University of Washington worked at Nintendo, which was just on the uh, other side of Lake, what is that, Lake? Washington. Of Lake Washington? Yeah. Is that the lake that has the 520 bridge going across it? Yep. All right. Um, so it wasn't uh, very far to go. Uh, it, it was tricky for me to get there because of my driver's license thing. But what are you looking up? I'm just going to make sure it's Lake Washington. Jen's going to make sure it's Lake Washington. because I, Like I said, Lake Washington? <laughs> that just came to the top of my head, but I don't know. Now I feel a little... But anyway, so I got a job at Nintendo as a gameplay counselor. And I've mentioned in the past that, you know, I ended up being there for, I think, about three years. Started out just answering phones, working the ridiculous grave shard shift, that starting be... at 4 a.m. every morning and working till 1 in the afternoon. It was absolutely awful. And I'll be honest, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, it was an okay job. It certainly paid really well. Um, and had benefits. It had like, huge benefits. I, I had a 401k when I was in my early 20s. Not that we actually contributed. I, I was offered a 401k, and I was too stupid to... I remember there was one time they, they brought us all in and said, okay, we're going to explain to you how great this 401k thing is we're setting up for you, working in a call center at a, at a video game company in the late 80s. This is going to be awesome. You should all take advantage of it. And I never even told Jen. I was like, eh, whatever. I'm whatever I was, 23, who cares? I'm sure if you had told me about it, I would I'm sure, excited. yeah. She, she got pissed at me years later <laughs> when she found out. And I'm like, oh, dear. Um, and Jen has confirmed that it is... Lake Washington. It is Lake Washington with yep. good old Mercer Island in it. So, but anyway, it, it was, on the whole, it was a good job. And I was there for three years. And I started out, and for the majority of my time there, my main job, I was always officially a gameplay counselor, which meant it was a customer service hotline where you would call if you were stuck in a video game, didn't know how to beat the final boss, how to beat Ganon at the end of Zelda, didn't know where the Maui Maui Ball was, or whatever it might have been, having a really hard time, you know, an adventure island, whatever. And uh, one of the interesting things about that job is, like I said, 
a good portion of the gameplay counselors were college students like me. And down in the basement, there was the office supply store. There was a person who worked there, but they were behind a cage. And anybody could just fill out a a requisition form and request pencils and pens and pads of paper and other things that start with the letter P. What, don't forget the sticky notes. Sticky notes, yes. Post-its. Post-its. Pens, pencils, pens, pads of paper, and post-it notes were all to be had. And now, we were all college students. And we all had need in our lives outside of Nintendo for these products. And while it was never officially company policy, it was pretty widely known that, hey, another one of the little side perks, in addition to 401ks that you're all too young and stupid <laughs> to actually use, another perk is... Free office supplies, yay! And we all did it. I mean, we were all kind of pretty much taught that in our orientation training class. I did it too. Well, it's not like you were going into business selling post-it no, yeah, notes yeah. on the side or something. Yeah, I, I didn't have a long trench coat, you know, <laughs> revealing, hey, you want some post-it notes? It was nothing like that. But and it's interesting, actually. I was there for three years. And for the first year and a half or so, I was still doing the job part-time and, and going to school part-time, eventually, I mean, it paid so well. The bonuses were so great. You know, they allowed us to buy our first house and whatnot in, in Burien, of all places. We still own that house. But, uh, what was I saying? Oh, Post-it notes. Oh, yeah. Even though, I eventually I got to the point where I was doing it full-time and I wasn't going to school anymore. And I, you know, Actually, both Jen and I are college dropouts. Yep. Stay in school, kids. But anyway... Or don't and retire early. Yeah. No, no, that's, that's not fair. College is important, but we, we got some lucky breaks. I think having a skill is important. Having a, having a useful, marketable skill is important. That's true. College is one way to get a useful, marketable skill. Yeah. How about that? Okay. Um, Trade school might even be better. Or yeah. community college. Yep. Expensive four-year universities, maybe not the best way. But yeah. that's well, just Although, us. to be fair, neither of us have kids. Neither of us are in the American workforce, so we don't really know what we're talking about necessarily. But I do tend to agree with Jen. I think plumbers will always have work. Yes. Fair enough. That has nothing to do with the Nintendo story. So anyway, I was working there full time at that point. But Jen's sister, her older sister, Becky, was uh, in graduate school. So she still needed school supplies every once in a while. And so yeah, every once in a while, I would just go and get some for her. Again, no big deal. Everybody did it. It was a... Uh, what, what, what's a consensual crime? What, what, <laughs> when you, the uh, crimes when nobody gets hurt? Yeah. Um, but anyway, so here's the thing. I, as I said earlier, as a young 23, 24, 25-year-old maybe, I guess it must have been that old, uh, must have been getting yeah. around that age, maybe 24, 23, tw- uh, whatever, I was very passionate. And I was all about fighting the power and doing what was right. And as a Nintendo gameplay counselor, we were given very strict rules about what we could and could not say on the phone. One of the things we were not allowed to do was give any recommendations that had anything to do with unlicensed product, like the Game Action Replay. I don't know if any of my viewers remember the GAR, the Game Action Replay, which was (laughs) a cartridge you could plug into your Nintendo Entertainment System and then plug another cartridge into that. And it would basically hack games, and you could type in codes to give you infinite lives and stuff like that. And it was a wonderful tool, um, but it was unlicensed. And we, as gameplay counselors, knew. I mean, we would get calls from people who were desperate to finish some ridiculously impossible game that they could not win at at all. Because games used to be much harder than they are these days. Back when men were men and video games were punishing. Not today when they give you everything on a silver platter. Uh, In my day, we had to work hard to make it through Battletoads. But anyway, so... 
We weren't allowed to give advice along those lines, and I kind of fought the power. I remember one time, there was literally this little old granny who called and was in tears because she was so desperate to be... I don't remember what the game was, but I remember she was crying on the phone. And I said, well, ma'am, I'm not supposed to tell you this, but what you could do is go out and buy a game action replay, and here's a code, and it would give you the lives you need to be able to make it through. And, um, you know, and I got in trouble for that. And... Um, you know, there were people who wanted to know about, you know, what was happening with certain events and all that. And, and, you know, we were the front lines. And when people called me on the phone, I wanted to speak truth. And I certainly <laughs> wanted to speak truth to power. So long story short, what I'm saying is I was a real pain in the butt. My managers were not crazy about me at all. Gemma's about to interject something there. I think you had one that really liked you. Yes, Kyle really liked me. But Kyle's boss, Todd, did not like me. Uh. And I can't remember the other woman's name. You know, like the two, the two who ran the entire call center, they did not like me because in weekly team meetings, um, you know, I'd be I I'd be the ball breaker who would ask the tough questions and everybody else would say, yeah! What, what, answer Rod, Richard, nobody knew me as Rado back then, answer Richard's question, and you know, it's like, and I, was just, I would just cause problems, but there was not much they could do, because I was stupid and young, but I was definitely earnest, and I was really good at my job, I'm a very, very good communicator, yep. people called back and asked for me all the time, um, but I was a real thorn in the side Ooh, of, the the, of, of the man, and the woman, and so, one day, I go down to the end of my shift. I had finally gotten to where I didn't have to work the 4 to 1. Now I was working the 5 to 2. Oh, that was so nice. Mm. Um, so it was 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I go down, and Becky needed something. Becky needed some Post-it notes. I, we always say it's Post-it notes. Yeah, but it was you know some pads of paper, some Post-it notes, some pens. She needed some more stuff. I hadn't given her anything for six months. I go down, just fill out the form, like I'd done dozens of times, like everybody had done. And I'm walking out to the car, and a security guard rushes out and says, Oh, 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 oh you're going to have to come with me. Like, what? Uh, and so take me back in, put me in a room. I end up sitting there for, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes. Felt like forever. And Todd comes in and says, uh, Richard, we, uh, we caught you stealing office supplies. Company like, property. We caught you stealing company property. You were stealing company property. I'm like, what? What are you? The post-it notes? What? Um, yes. And, uh, you know, open your bag. And they made me open my bag. And, yeah, there were some pens and post-it notes and whatever. I'm like, yeah, everybody does this. And uh, no, 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 that, that's, that's clear and vagrant theft. And I'm like, okay, what? So I get a warning? Because, again, my record was spotless. Not vagrant theft. Uh, or, yeah, vagrant theft. Um, what, what? Flagrant. Flagrant theft. And so, what, do I get a warning or something? And like, no, you're fired. Just like that. So I got fired for stealing Post-it notes. Yep. And he comes home. <laughs> and he says, hey, honey, guess what happened to me today? Yep. I'm like, I don't know. What happened to you today? He goes, oh, yeah. I got fired. I'm like, ah! Yeah, because back in that day, we did not have enough to retire. Early. No, we certainly did not, and we had a mortgage to <laughs> to pay. I don't know. I thought it was ridiculous. It was. Ridiculous. And again, I was young and stupid and uh, angry young man. Jen freaked out, and it was okay. Obviously, we did okay. Yeah, we've. Survived. But it, it's so. What happens? I um. I go to a, down to the unemployment office. You're not going to tell the full story, are you? I don't know. Should I tell the no, whole story? You no, they only asked for the Nintendo story. Yep. And nobody used to ask for the full story because we cannot tell you. <gasps> oh, but the best part is at I the end know, of the full story. I know, but what's the statute of limitations on that? I'm sure we're well out of the statute of limitations. Well, if people want to know, they can ask for part two. What happened after the Nintendo story? <laughs> um, anyway, so there you go. 
Greg, that was the Nintendo story. I got fired for stealing post-it notes. Yep. All righty, um, moving on. Let's see here. Oh, this is another question that was last, last month. You may recall, I was just kind of breezing through, and I missed actually a few questions, and I saved this one. This was from Eves, who uh, he, all I said is, oh, Eves, thank you very much for the nice email. And I totally missed, right in the middle, he actually had a question. He just didn't put a question mark at the end of it, so I missed it. So, bringing back Eves' question, uh, Eves was talking about how, you know, I make a big deal about theme and games. And in the very, very first podcast I ever did, I originally expected I was going to have a recurring segment where I talk about the thematic content of games that people dismiss as not thematic, and I did one about Dominion. Eves asked, could I do one for Dixit? What is the theme of Dixit? What is the story? Who are we? What is happening? Would you like to take a stab at that, honey? Because to me, that's really easy. There's totally a theme in Dixit. Yeah, it's like your dreams and... Nope. Okay. (laughs) Then apparently, no, I don't want to take a stab. No, take a stab. Well, I mean, it's it's just a really creative process, so it really could be anything. It could be any sort of brainstorming session, any sort of past life regression. I don't know. So Jen says the theme of Dixit is past life regressions. That's actually pretty cool, but I don't think that's what it is. Um, and although you're right, Dixit obviously doesn't need a theme at all, but it definitely has one. And if I were teaching you, if I were sitting down with you and teaching you and a group of other people how to play Dixit, I would totally explain it in thematic terms. And this is how I would explain it. Okay, everybody, we are all storytellers. And that's not an exaggeration. That's not me making stuff up. It says that in the book, that we are telling stories, that every card is a story. And the thing is, and actually, I need to think about this because I used to have this in my head. Basically, you know, well, I assume everybody knows what the structure of Dixit is and how one player is the master storyteller, the lead storyteller, plays a card, everybody else plays a card, and then everybody has to vote to see. Here here would be the story. It's like, okay, we are, um, every round, one person is the master storyteller and is going to tell their life, you know, the, uh, their, their life work, but they write it anonymously because, you know, they're, 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 they're cool or casual. Everybody's going to, and, and we are all writers as well. And, um, you, Jen, when you are going to write your masterworks and you're going to put it out there anonymously, um, we, the rest of us, we're all going to try and jump on and, you know, try to write on your coattails and take all the credit for your masterwork. <laughs> so you put out some, um, you, you put out some story and, and you said what the theme of the story is, yeah. you know, bunny rabbit or, um, Red Hot Chili Pepper, whatever it is, whatever the, the clue is that you use, or, ha <laughs> you know, because you can say anything you want in Dixit. And then we all say, oh, well, we, we go back and we write our story and we put them out there too. And we hope everybody thinks we're the one because that's what you want to do. You want everybody to pick yours as the masterwork. Yep. Of course, there's only one masterwork. It was yours because you, in that round, you're the master storyteller and we're trying to write on your coattails yep. because, you know, and, and that's basically the story. And that describes, that explains how all the scoring works because... The scoring in Dixit is probably the only thing that people have a hard time with. If you explain the storytelling in thematic terms like that, where, oh, we're all trying to become the one, and, and therefore that's why you get points when somebody guesses yours. That's why you lose. You know, it, Dixit has a theme as well. It is a theme of rival storytellers telling anonymous stories, but hoping that everybody thinks they're the one that wrote the masterwork. That's what the story is. That is what's happening. Now, it is abstracted because we don't literally get out a typewriter and write stories. It's just this card abstractly represents the novel or the screenplay or whatever it is that you wrote. But anyway, that's that's the theme of Dixit. Moving on. And that is, I would explain it in those terms if I was teaching people because it helps them better understand how scoring works. 
But what about? But what about? But what about? She said, "Don't you all lose points?" I don't remember exactly the scoring, but it's something. If 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 all of the people choose the same one, then the clue was too broad or too easy, and nobody gets points. Um, It's something like that. And honestly, I have to admit, we haven't played Dixit for over a year. Yeah. Um, But whatever it is, yeah, you're right. There was something like that. Easy to explain. Yeah. Turns out your masterwork wasn't that great. And it was everybody plagiarized it. So <laughs> and it was, yeah. yeah. I mean, so you can, you can totally explain so no every element, every outcome from a thematic point of view of Dixit is a game of rival storytellers. Okay. So anyway, I can go for that. moving on to some new questions now. First one from Robert. All righty. Uh, let's see. How much has your previous career in the video game industry helped you get retired? And do you ever see yourself getting back to a regular job? not related to video games? Um, well, the answer to the second one, no. I, well, I have a regular job. <laughs> my regular job is now Rado Runs Through. For better or for worse, for richer or poorer, it is now my job. I, it's, I guess, a part-time job, although actually over the last year it was definitely a full-time job. I was pulling crazy hours. Yeah. 2016 is the year where I'm going to try and slow it down a little bit. But yeah, I, I do have a job. I do work full-time. I'd like to say I'm retired, but I am not. I, I'm working hard for the money that you guys give me. <laughs> so that answers the second question. I don't think Jen's very comfortable answering the first question of how much our pre- my previous career in the video game industry helped me get retired at an early age of 46. Well, Suffice to say, if you are the lead designer on wildly, monumentally successful video games that, that literally generate billions in revenue... You'll probably have a little bit of extra cash. You'll do okay. Yep. <laughs> And we didn't even do it the smart way because oh gosh, my husband likes to move around and try new things and stuff. So we didn't even stick. I mean, there's there's some people that stayed back at the original company that. Jen is pointing out that okay, my first game that I was the lead designer on was Siphon Filter. Siphon Filter was a monster hit. Yeah. We got monster royalties yeah. off of that. Very nice royalties. Very nice royalties. Um, basically paid, all right, monster nice royalties without mentioning any specifics, um, and then did Siphon Filter 2, and I think I was there long enough for, to get the Siphon Filter 2 royalties, which were also really, really great. I think they were even better, um, but uh, by that point, I was burned out, and, uh, and, I, and we left. No, that's right. We didn't get the monster. We got the monster royalties for Siphon Filter 1, but, and, and we had gotten some royalties, but there was another big royalty drop coming, yeah. and, but I, by that point, I was so burned out, I couldn't just keep doing Siphon Filter. I have to do something new, and so off we went to Texas, and we just missed it by like six months or eight months, another big royalty Siphon Filter check that everybody, you know, because I was still in touch with everybody, he's like, oh my God, this royalty check was amazing. It was the biggest one ever. Yeah. Like, all right, well, we missed that one. But we still did very well. Yeah. So off we go to Texas, yeah. where I we were there for about three years or so, mm-hmm. and worked on several games. Um, they all broke even. None of them lost money. But of course, Sims console was huge. It would, did mega, mega bucks. But um, once again, I was real. Well, I was getting burned out. Um, but really, to be fair, yeah. we left Texas as much for you as for me. Because Jen could not handle the fire ants, could not handle the cedar pollen, could not handle the humidity. So she was physically miserable. I had been um, in place, and I really couldn't do the kind of games I wanted to do. And so we left and went to England, went to work at Lionhead. And once again, about six or eight months later, a big, ginormous Sims royalty check dropped. And we missed that one. So... Long story short, we could have retired a lot earlier if, if, if I just would have had the patience to stick it out. 
Go to Lionhead, make Fable 2. It's the biggest hit yet. It's a super monster ginormous hit. But by the end of Fable, I I was more, I mean, I, I had high blood pressure. I had permanent eye twitches. I had irritable bowel. I, I, I was under so much pressure. I was so miserable. Um, you know, I'm proud of the game and all that, but it almost killed me. As soon as I was able to get out, basically, right, basically about, I think a month before we went gold, when everything was written in stone, everything was done, I, I left Lionhead because I just couldn't stay any longer. A year later, uh, Fable 2 was a ginormous hit, and there was another huge amount of money that I walked away from. And uh, yeah, so I had this kind of recurring pattern of walking away from lots and lots of lots of money. Yep, but we still were able to. But in spite of that, the money we did bring in, because I was on a series of well, and monstrous also, hits. We didn't buy... Hummers and that's the important thing. It is so. I mean, I've obviously I've been on several very very successful games, and everybody else on the team they just would go crazy. The lead programmer on Siphon Filter, Jen and me, we saved all that money. We just nestled it away. We paid off outstanding debts. We got rid of all my student debt, all of that stuff, and, and a lot of other stuff besides. He really went. Didn't he? Didn't Chris buy two Hummers eventually? I think he got a Porsche and a Hummer. Yes, he bought a Porsche, and then later on, that was not satisfying enough, so he bought a Hummer as well. And this was when Hummers were brand new. This was only when you know Arnold Schwarzenegger could buy Hummers. So, and that's so common. I mean, whenever anybody in the video game industry gets a little bit of money, they just blow it. Um, but we were, we Jen and I are both ridiculously frugal people. We both have been. Um, that's drilled in hard to me because you know I came up very from a very, very poor family that, you know, filed for bankruptcy several times over the course of their lives. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I've always known how to stretch a dollar. Yeah, we've and, never filed for bankruptcy. Yeah, though. Jen, she actually comes from a relatively... Middle class. Yeah, I mean, upper middle class. Your dad was a professor who made did very, very well. He's from Washington U. And so, I mean, was it EW? Yeah. Yeah. And so, I don't know. I mean, you could have been the other way, but for whatever reason, you're incredibly frugal as well. Yeah. Just good parenting, I think, when yep. I was young. Always had savings accounts growing up as a kid. Actually, had to put a third of my, um, half of whatever I earned into my college account mm. from whenever I earned money as a kid. Yeah. So. There you go. That's how I paid for my college. <clears throat> so, yes, video game industry definitely was a huge success. And, um, you know, I, I would, a word of caution, anybody thinking, well, heck, I should go in the video game industry. I was lucky. I, you know, I, I worked hard, you know, and, and, yeah, the old adage, you make your own luck, there's truth to that as well. But there are many more games every year that come out that should be monster hits that are not. And it's just bad luck. Siphon Filter was a big monster hit. Sims was a big monster hit. Fable was a big monster hit. Um, so, yeah, we made a lot of money. We retired early. And then, for some reason, I picked up a camera and started talking about board games and gave myself another job. <laughs> not really quite sure why I did that. But here we are. That's a question for another day. That was the first question. That was a question for oh. me. Now, uh, Robert has a question for Jen. Although it's not, a, it's a bit facetious. Are you, honey, yes. are you jealous of that woman that I play 95% of my run-throughs with? <laughs> no, I think she does a great job. <laughs> she's wonderful. Okay. <laughs> yep. She gives you a breather? Yep. Right. I'm sure she's very clever as well. Yep. Um, one for us both. How much have you grown fond of Malta and will you miss it once you move away? Oh, 
you know, actually, I have grown fond of Malta. And you didn't expect to. I did not expect to. Yeah. You, you, when we first got here, you liked it about, I mean, you were the one who actually wanted to come here. Yeah, I did. I actually. was really on the fence about coming. I was completely enamored with Malta from the first visit. Yeah. The, yeah. And then um, we got, we actually, <laughs> when you were working, we could afford to live in Amdina, which is the walled city on, on Malta. And it's an amazing place yeah. and like a fairy tale to live there, really. Yeah. It's kind of like living in Venice. Yeah. Without the, without the canals. Yeah. But just a real sense of history, which as Americans, um, that's just something I'm always really aware of is, you know, I'm living somewhere that's 700 years old. The building I'm living in right now is 700 years old. Pretty cool. Um, so, when we were in Amdina, not now. This is not a 700-year-old no, apartment No, this flat complex. is maybe 20 years old. <laughs> but anyway, um, so I really enjoyed that. But of course, um, when he took early retirement or decided to we decided to stay here. Yeah. Um, we reduced our cost of living quite a lot. A lot, lot. A lot, lot, lot. And um, found this flat over here on Gozo, which is wonderful and affordable for us. And I think because I love England so much, I pined a bit for England. Well, you still do. I mean, um, you torture yourself. I know, I she go goes back. back at least once or twice a year to England because that's where her main studio is so she can work on big glass pieces. But when she's not doing that... Uh, we are watching um, BBC shows. That like, show beautiful England. Yeah, that are, you know, what are, we're watching one now about the history of canals in England. And so it, it's just every week, it's just nonstop beautiful English rolling countryside while this nice lady talks about the history of the canal system. <sighs> and she just does it to torture herself. Because Malta is a lot of things. Um, bucolic, it is not. Definitely not. Um, but, but, on the other hand, I really enjoy where we're living right now. And I adore... Um, coming back from our evening walks and seeing this bit of rock that's outside our flat, and it just gives me such a sense of contentment too. I don't know why. It's called the white jug. Mm-hmm. Il, il so beta. you like you like the white jug, yeah, more than um, the ocean. No, I, I enjoy the ocean as well. But there's just something so wonderful about walking back to the flat and seeing that as a landmark, and yeah. it just feels really good. People have probably seen it in, occasionally in a video, we turn the camera around and look out our front window. It basically looks like a miniature version of, what was it called, Devil's Tower mm-hmm. in uh, the Close Encounters of the Third yeah. Kind. You know, the mashed thing that potatoes. Richard Dreyfuss made out of mashed potatoes. <laughs> exactly, the mashed potatoes thing from Mysterium. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, yeah, it's like a little miniature one of those. I mean, you know, we can do-do-do-do-do is what I always think when I look at it, but I don't know what Jen thinks. I don't do the music. Okay. It's, it doesn't. Anyway, so I would say yes. I have become strangely fond, and and all of the weird stuff about Malta, you know, the crazy driving, and um, yeah, I, I guess I've just gotten more patient, and so that's a nice feeling too, to not be quite so impatient. Yeah, yeah. Um, coming from living in America and to a lesser extent living in England, we're used to go, 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 now, 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 instant gratification. Nothing is instant in Malta. Yeah. I mean you. I, I can't tell you how long it took me to find just normal stuff. Where the heck do you find this this thing, this normal thing that you might want to buy? Mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> you have to ask around. Pick Somebody up 50 will tell of them you. Next time you're in America, <laughs> that also helps. Yeah. So, uh, was it? Did I answer the question? That was the question. Will okay. you miss it once you move away? Um, and that would be Jen's answer. My answer, nah, I don't really care. I've, I grew up on a boat. I don't necessarily get particularly attached wherever I am. I'm happy wherever I am. Um, Jen is the one who has, you know, strong roots type I do. drives. I like knowing where I'm going to find my stuff. Yeah. And I like knowing which store has what. Yeah. 
I'm a vagabond. And I like by, I like knowing nature. the back roads and how to get around. I like driving down the back roads and then never seeing them again and finding more back roads afterwards. But that's but I'm perfectly happy here. And it's lovely here. And I have no complaints and I could I mean, you know, this this could be a forever flat for me as far as I'm concerned. But um, yeah, but if I leave, I'm sure the next place will be just as awesome in different ways. Yeah, that's true. It's always this or something better. All righty. Justin asks, uh, I see Gold West hovering just outside your top 100 games of all time. 101 to be exact. It's an awesome game, but why no run through? The game needs more love. No, Justin, the game needs more thumbs. Basically, I've got go to request.rado.com. <laughs> Somewhere on that five-page geek list, you will find Gold West. If I were to bet, I'd have to look. I would be willing to bet Gold West is probably sitting around maybe fifty or sixty thumbs to get a goal to get to get a uh, what do you call it uh, a run through. You really need to be getting up to like hundred and twenty thumbs. So if you want to see it, just start a campaign. Get fifty people to thumb it. And it'll scream to the top of the list, and it'll get covered. It's a fantastic game. Don't get me wrong. We both like it quite a bit, but that's what's holding it back. Okay. And you are responsive to the voters. Yep, I am responsive. They say jump. I say, oh, how high. David asks, as I skim through it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ah, yes. Uh... Is there a way to know if a game is about to go out of print and possibly not being reprinted? David asked this because he actually talked quite a bit about you know, trying to buy games from people, trying to sell games from people, and always being worried in the back of his mind, wait a minute, am I being taken advantage of? Um, are they trying to buy this game that's really worth 500 bucks and I'm selling it to them for the MSRP of 50 because they know it's out of print and I don't? It's a fair question. And I, I, can't, I don't really know of a good way to be able to tell at a glance if something is out of print or not. But to answer your more underlying question, how can you avoid getting uh, taken to the cleaners, go to a website, which is, let's see, I've got it in my shortcuts here, in my URL. Here is it. It is, where is it? Well, there's two you can go to. One is BoardGamePrices.com, spelled exactly like it sounds, BoardGamePrices.com. That's a little aggregate site that will tell you how much games are going for at a bunch of different online retailers, like Cool Stuff Inc. and whatnot. That's just an awesome site in general to get an idea of what games are, but that doesn't really help you without a print stuff. So more importantly, you want to go to the Board Game Game Pricing Utility, which is www.spielboy.com slash geekprices.php hash. And I don't expect anybody to remember that, but you can just go see. I'll put a link for that down in the show notes. Go there. There, you can type in any game you want, do a search for it, and you will get a history of what people have paid for it buying it on BoardGameGeek. And um, you know, and it'll say whether you know what what it sells for, like new, and you can see trends. Oh, it used to, you know, five years ago it used to sell for this, but now it sells for this. So whenever you're thinking about buying or selling a game used to somebody, go to that site, Spielboy.com/geekprices.phphash, and do a search, and you'll get very, very good, useful data that will help steer you the correct way. So that would be the answer to. David's question. Moving on to Brian. Brian Brian asks, you've mentioned that you have some friends you play games with when they are in Malta or you're visiting them and they're in their respective areas. If money were not an object, would you want to move somewhere to be close to other friendly gamers? 
I'm looking at Jen. He is looking at me, and I'm trying to think and of the where off. I would move. Well, the big question is, we, 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 okay, here's another way to put it. If money, well, okay, no. Well, like, when we okay, were in Guilford, yeah, we there was the Woking Gaming yeah, Club, and we went out nice. every Tuesday night, and we played games with a whole bunch of lovely people. That was very nice. Right. So the question is, if money were no object, would you want to move somewhere that would give money was no option means gives you whatever you want. You want yeah. to live by the sea, you want to live close to a major metropolitan area, you want to live in a place where you don't have to pay taxes, whatever. <laughs> if you could live anywhere you wanted in the world, I guess another way to put this is, would you try to ensure that um, one of the parameters met by the place you're choosing to live includes local gamers you can game with? Golly, I don't think that that would necessarily be a one of my top priorities. Would it be in your top 10 priorities? I don't think so. Your top 50 priorities. Well, sure, there. But, you know, <laughs> there's so many conventions that you can go and you can play with people. Mm -hmm. Or Not that we particularly do that. We go to Essen every year. And we it's okay saying no. That would not be a priority for you. Well, I believe I said, no, it's not a priority. Yeah, but then you're hedging saying, oh, but we can still play with people. Don't worry. Uh, I, I would just jump in and agree with Jen. The interesting thing is, I mean... Jen and I both enjoy gaming as a two-player experience more than any other player count, yeah. quite frankly. I, 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 Mainly because the more people you play with, the longer the game gets. Mm -hmm. And I only have a certain amount of threshold. Yes. Even when playing with friends. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that we absolutely adore and that we enjoy playing with. Uh, David and Angela, the, the, the lovely British couple who comes by probably three or four times a year, and every time they do, we meet up with them and we play games. We love them. We love gaming with them. Yep. Absolutely adore it. Still prefer gaming with each other more. Well, I would say still two games with them is probably about the right amount. Three Every games. three months? No, no. I'm just saying oh, in, in a, a, a sit-down session, mm -hmm. three games tends to be, you know, I've lost the plot by mm -hmm. that point. So I think part of it is just that a two-game experience, two-person gaming experience, is a shorter one. Okay. And that's more satisfying. All right. For my attention span. Mm -hmm. Well, um, for me, I actually find um, two-player gaming, yeah, yeah, it is nice that it is shorter. There's, there's certainly an upside to it in that Jen and I, obviously we know each other pretty well. We're pretty comfortable <laughs> with each other. And it's just easier playing with Jen than playing with anybody, even somebody else who is just as laid back and easygoing as Jen, it's always going to be a little bit harder because in the back of my mind, I'm not quite as comfortable. I'm more concerned about them because are, are, are they having a good time? Are, are they actually going to articulate if I've done something that upsets them? Um, or is there going to be some kind of fundamental mismatch between us, the way I play a game, between the way play, play, they play a game? Is it, you know, it, it, turning it into a social experience is wonderful and lovely and rich and enriching and fulfilling, but it's also just a little bit more work. Mm. And it's not work playing a game with Jen. If it's just not going well, either one of us say, yeah, let's just, let's just, yeah. Cut bait and run. You know, that's not something that a lot of people are that comfortable playing with when you're playing with other people because, oh, I don't want to do that because maybe I'd ruin the game for them. I'll just sit in silence and hopefully get through this really quick because I don't want to bring the game down for anybody else. You know, that kind of thing. There's so many things like that. And on the counterpoint, there are so many wonderful experiences. There are so many wonderful games that Jen and I don't get to experience because of this or that we have to experience in some sort of compromised way where the game would be infinitely superior to um, if you had more players. And, you know, that's true, but at the end of the day, even with the compromises we have to make, I'm looking at 300 games that I could happily play for the rest of my life with Jen and nobody else. Yep. 
So um, I don't think it would be a. I, it would. It's. It would be on my list. It would not be in my top ten list of considerations for if we could live anywhere and money were no object either. Just because it's not something we need. We game for the social aspect, but between us, yeah. we no. We yeah. We don't game for the social. We game for the couples aspect. Yeah. For us, we are predominantly couples gamers, <laughs> um, not gamer gamers or not social gamers. And you know. For anybody who is listening to this and is ever going to sit down and play a game with me at a convention or, heck, visits Malta and swings by our house, <laughs> which happens, you know, gosh, that seems like it happens once a month. It happened last week. It's going to be happening next week as well. Yeah. When people visit Malta, they all want to come by and game. And we're happy to do it. Yep. Please don't take it the wrong way. We're happy to have you come. And, we, and I will enjoy playing games with you. Just maybe not quite as much as I would have enjoyed playing with Jen. <laughs> um. And, and, and variety is good. Variety is the spice of life. Absolutely. So don't, don't feel put off. Don't think that every second you're playing a game with me, in the back of my mind, I'm like, oh, I wish I could get out of this. Because I'm not. <laughs> no. Um, we enjoy playing with, with guests. Yes. We like people. We're not saying we don't. We yeah. just like, our, we, we like each oh, other more than we like people. Though. Oh, Jen's got something I to do say. have something to say um, about that. Because actually, just recently, the Denver Game Pub. The Denver Game Pub, yes. Yeah. Um, because they, they have a really cool thing. It's, it was on Kickstarter. Yeah. Um, and I just thought, how cool would that be to have like, oh. a game pub nearby? Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you completely 180-ing your entire original answer? I'm just saying that if there, if we move somewhere like Denver... Money is no object. We could move anywhere in the world, and you're making your list of priorities, yep. is local-friendly game pub. Did that suddenly crack your top 10 priorities? That would be certainly a cherry on the top. Okay, doesn't crack the top 10, though. Um, no, I think there's a, a lot alongside of things. things like low crime and um, low taxes. And, yep, and although nice, money's no object, we don't have to worry about taxes. Nice places to walk the dogs. Yeah, places to walk the dogs. Um, you know, either good natural, you know, either either mountains at. or oceans to look at. Yep. Um, you know, no no uh, able to breathe. Yep. You know, no pollen Reasonable issues. Reasonable temperatures. Yeah, moderate temperatures. No mosquitoes. There's a million things. Yeah. But even still, you don't think a game pub. Maybe makes your top 20 is what you're saying. Yeah, let's say, You just kind of talked yourself yeah, into that. Yeah, let's say top 20. All right, I'd, I'd say that's fair. Because I think that's, especially if it was somewhere like yeah. um, that had really good food. Yeah. Well, we very much enjoyed going to the Woken Game we Club did. every Tuesday night. Yep. And the only downside to it was we, re we really would have preferred it was every th Sunday afternoon. Yeah. Because neither Jen or I are super stoked about playing big, heavy, meaty Euros um, past 7 o'clock at night. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's always a bit of a stretch for us. We like playing them. Early in the day, when we're full of vim and vigor, in the evening, that's when you sit back and relax and watch TV shows about British countryside, and which is apparently else. what we do. Yep. Okay. So, uh, there you go. Good question from Brian. Moving on to uh, Pietor. I heard in your Deluva Project video gameplay run-through that you mentioned Laputa Castle in the Sky. Do you like anime? What are yours and Jen's favorite series or movies? Now, you know what anime is, right? Yeah. Kiki. <laughs> okay, there you go. Apparently, Jen's favorite anime is Kiki's Delivery Service. Yep. Just like that? Except for the, hey! Yeah. The, Jen's biggest problem she has with anime is, of course, I mean, some, some translations do it. First of all, Jen has no interest in listening to the original Japanese. Um, the Japanese intonations, um, delivery is very strident. Mm -hmm. And very fast-paced, and Jen does not find it pleasant to listen to. I am very noise-sensitive. Kaneda! Tetsuo! Kaneda! 
not touch a wall. Yeah, Jen just, I mean, I Jen's like rolling her eyes just at me doing that. Yep. Um, so that's a big hurdle for her. So she's only going to be interested in any kind of anime if it's been, you know, well, well uh, not subbed, but well dubbed. Forget about the subs, it's all about the dubbed. But then the problem is you get into these, I mean, Japanese vocal cadence is so radically different than English. And so even you get really great actors, they're still struggling with making the dialogue sound natural. First, it's often very poorly translated. Um, and if, if not just because of the translation, because the subject matter itself just doesn't, you know, the spiritual topics and whatnot, they just don't work well. But it always, even if you get a really great actor, it, it kind of sounds funny and weird. Um, but... Apparently, Jen loves Kiki's Delivery Service. Well, I just remember it. Okay, so and that's all you have to say. Any other anime you can think of? No. That's it. That's that's the beginning and the end of anime, as far as Jen's concerned. And we've tried several. We've tried. I mean, we've tried almost all of Miyazaki stuff. We've watched Howl's Floating Castle, and I can't remember the names of them all. But um, yeah, Kiki is the only thing that stuck with Jen. For me, I discovered anime at the Neptune Theater. In when we were at the University of Washington back in the late 80s. And that was when I watched Akira for the first time. And I was absolutely blown away. I was floored by it. Of course, you know, growing up, I had watched Star Blazers and Speed Racer. And I'd loved both of those. Absolutely adored both of them. But I didn't really think about anime beyond that. But then Akira said, oh my gosh, this is, you know, there's something more than Speed Racer and Star Blazers. Let's get into this. The very second thing I was exposed to, again, in theater, at the Neptune Theater, because they, I, if I recall, maybe they had like an anime night once a week. They would put on an anime film. The second one I saw was... Lapita Castles in the Sky, and that was even better. Lapita Castles in the Sky is absolutely amazing. Probably in my top 20 films of all time, and certainly my favorite piece of anime ever. And then uh, the third one I tried, I don't remember what it was, it was Gundam something or other, and it was awful. And honestly, probably 90% of anime I just can't stand at all. You know, just like the really over-the-top, in-your-face, giant robots, you know, kinetic action for its own sake. I, I, I just don't, I don't have much patience for, I've never really enjoyed very much. But Lapita Castle in the Sky, Akira, and Cowboy Bebop. Those are the three things that I can say I love unabashedly, unreservedly about anime. After that, while well, I have a childhood nostalgia for Speed Racer, so much so that, heck, I even enjoyed the Wachowski movie, and Star Blazers. And I think that's about the beginning and end of my love affair with anime. Um, there's a lot of it out there. There's a lot I appreciate. Um, you know, I, I've seen the, the Fireflies, you know, the, 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 the nuclear holocaust one. I've, I've seen a lot of them. And, you know, I guess I can get engaged intellectually, but I very rarely find myself getting engaged emotionally. And that's even true for most of Miyazaki's stuff. But uh, Lapita Castle in the Sky will always have a warm place in my heart. Okay, moving on to a question from Stephen. Let's see. Seen lots of hobbies over the years. Um, wax and Wayne. My assumption is board games are definitely hot now, but we'll eventually get to the point where the public will turn its attention elsewhere with declining money coming in for the hobby, and the production of games will decline. I was wondering if you have any thoughts on this, and how long do you think the boom in board games will last? Honey pie? 
I... Actually, while I was just ra waxing rhapsodic about anime, she went up and got herself some tea. So Jen's just coming back in case you hear some mic juddery noises now. Yeah. Honey Pie, just what do you think? Are are we in the... Are we? Uh, are, is the bubble about to burst? Is there a bubble? Okay, I, I also wanted to just say that I... Oh, you're ba back to anime? To to Totoro. Oh, Totoro. I, I, you like Totoro? Yeah. You did not enjoy that movie. I know. You barely made it through. Too much noise and ch child noises and things. Yeah. In that movie, there was just too much. But yeah. the uh, the stories I like. I think it's just the presentation. Yeah. And again, it's uh, yeah, it, it is. I mean, it, there's a, Japanese animation has a different voice. Mm -hmm. And it's not a voice that Jen is comfortable with. But like Jen said, she is ridiculously super hypersensitive to noise. Yeah. Super duper hypersensitive. Yep. Um, anyway, so honey. So, so uh, anyway, I just wanted to say I, I two. 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 Two that you can name. Yes. That but only I came one. Up with on my very own. But only one that you actually liked. Well, I think I, I liked both of them. But I probably would have been happier reading the stories mm. than... Fair enough. Them. That's a good point. That's a good way to look at it. Yeah. So maybe Jen's more of a manga girl, perhaps. <laughs> I don't know. We'll have to put that to the test. Okay. Um, anyway, so back to... So the next question oh, is, the... Stephen would like to know what our thoughts are about the uh, boom and bust cycles of board games. Are we in a bubble? I think we are definitely in the rising part of... of I don't know if I would call it a bubble, to be honest, right. but I think we're definitely on oh, sure. the yeah. going sure, yeah. That's upside. undeniable. We're definitely on the rise. Do I think it's going to go away? Um, that's interesting because it's not like video games have gone away. And yes. they've certainly been going on longer. Well, people would often counter that there, um, in the early 80s, there was the video game crash that largely only affected North America um, and didn't really affect the rest of the world because the rest of the world just switched over to Nintendo almost immediately without um, blinking an eye. But America just said, ah, we're done with video games for a while. You don't even remember. The Atari... At the end of the Atari 2600, did you have an Atari 2600? We had something. You had something, oh, yeah. We had a Commodore 64. You had a Commodore 64, yes. Um, <laughs> I had a TI-994A. <laughs> but anyway, as Boy, I was saying. that was the day when they named things yeah. so nice. The, uh, there was arguably a bit of a bubble burst in the early or mid-80s for video games, but it was inconsequential. I mean, because it, it was just, it was a pause. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not It was. It was it a all. blip. Because obviously video games are doing fine. Yeah. <laughs> They're doing better than ever. And there's really... I, I, would, I would draw parallels between video game industry's continued meteoric rise, almost unbroken for the last uh, 30 years, without any sort of break and no break in, no, no stop in sight. I would draw parallels to the meteoric rise of cinema. From the turn of the century and over the space of 30 years went from nothing to this weird thing that people shunned and didn't understand and thought, and you know, brouhaha about it. It's going to destroy the theater and this is, this is useless. I would, I would draw parallels to the rise of recorded music. I, I, uh, forms of entertainment rise and they keep rising. I don't think, I don't think there is, other than that one little blip in the video game industry, which was really just kind of like a weird conflux of once-in-a-lifetime um, external forces that had less to do with the public's desire for video games and more to do with um, greedy 
video game publishers overextending themselves, going out of business, and then all of a sudden, oh, crap, there's nobody to actually make games anymore for a little while. You know what's really interesting? What's interesting, Honey Pie? Remember that, um, uh, who is it, the Alex, Crazy Alex show that we were watching? The guy that nobody wanted to talk to? Oh, it was a TV show. And remember he was obnoxious and... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. And and he was talking about the video games, mm-hmm. about how basically girls and boys equally loved video games when they first came out in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And at some point, the toy manufacturers yes, yes, yes. had to, it was, I mean, this was all news to me. Mm-hmm. Do you want? Why don't you tell them that you're better at the story? Oh, I, uh, yeah. It was. It's well. It's it's an ongoing thing that still goes on to this very day. I mean, with all, with all the brouhaha about where's Ray and all my Star Wars toys, that um, toy entertainment manufacturing conglomerates have decided to. It's in their best financial interest to segment toys so they can more effectively market and drill down and make more money. And they made a conscious decision because Centipede was unisex. Mm-hmm. And Pac-Man immediately led to Miss Pac-Man. And pole position, anybody would play, and Jen would have played Frogger. it just as much as I would have. Asteroid. Or Frogger. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, right around, right, right upon, you know, the, basically Nintendo uh, marketing decided, you know what, we need to start marketing these games at boys. Uh, it was it was a conscious decision to market games specifically as young boys entertainment because there was already this existing thing of where does it get put into you know in the in the early eighties before the mini crash video games um, were they they were their own thing but you know when when they came back they came back as toys for children as opposed to this broad universal thing that all walks of life played which is what the early 80s was before the little mini crash and so they came back as toys for children so they had to be classified as for boys or girls a conscious decision was made to cla- to classify them as boys entertainment and that's why to this day we still have misogynistic video games. We have Gamers Gate. We have, you know, Femme Frequency. And everything about that is because of that choice that was made. Whereas before then, games were truly unisex. And they could have stayed that way. But a conscious marketing decision to maximize profit potential of, game, of, of shelves in Walmarts or Kmarts. Because Walmarts didn't exist back then, I don't think. But yeah, so that that was that was an odd thing. And you know, we're getting out of it. We're gonna work our way out of it. Just like as a society, we always work our way out of everything. Mm-hmm. People are always quick to point out how things are worse off now than they used to be. Everything across the board, every metric you could ever measure is better. Yep. Humanity always, always, always gets better if you look, if you take a step back and look at the the graphs that chart movement. And that's going to be true for board games as well, to try to circle this back around to, are we in the middle? I do not believe there is a board game bubble. I believe there is no particular reason, considering the fact that board games are so tiny and so minuscule and inconsequential. I mean, board games haven't even come close to a scintilla of the cultural impact that video games have, that music has, that cinema has, that television has. There is infinite expansion capability because there are whatever it is um just shy of nine billion people on the planet that board games could be marketed to that don't know they exist it may look like hey there's a lot of us but there are not very many of us right now we are still in the very very minority yeah very nation we're 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 barely a zygote at this point, as well, an industry and you think about the games that are out there how many games are you know italian era expansions how many are roman you know 
games of yeah. of building things. Well, there's just going to be so many more genres coming yeah. out. Yeah, undiscovered country of plenty. Exactly. Yep. So yeah, I'm not worried about the health. I'll tell you a funny story. Honey, story time. I have a I have an unasked for story, but I'll tell you anyway. When I was a little girl, probably seven or eight, I did not understand how music was made. I mean, actually, I was taking violin lessons, so you'd think I might understand. But, I mean, basically, that's learning how to read music and how to play what's on the sheet. You mean you didn't understand the music industry? I just didn't. I thought that all of the music that was available has, has, is out there. Mm-hmm. And I didn't understand that more new music was going to be made every year. And there was going to be, uh, you know, new ways of composing and compiling and singing and new thoughts are going to be <laughs> expressed and all of that. It just, so every time you heard a new song, you thought, oh, yeah, that, I, this is, I'm just hearing it for the first time. It must have been around yeah. forever because... This is all magic, and it's all... Well, it's coming out yeah. of this, this People box, don't make this, this magic stuff. box. Yeah. Um, and here I am plinking. This was the my... 70s, everybody. Yep. Um, yeah, we didn't have the internet. And maybe I was... There was even, no YouTube. Maybe I was five or six. I yeah, don't know. Yeah. I was really That's young. That's interesting. But it, it, and then at some point, it occurred to me that, no, actually, there are songwriters out there. People there are making are, this stuff. Yeah. There are new bands forming all the time, and there's this infinite amount of ways that you can combine tones and words and ideas and thoughts and rhythms and all that. And it just, it blew my mind. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's kind of pertinent to this Mm. question is we are just at that sort of five or six year old age of of my brain, not understanding, you know, the infinite possibilities. At this point, we cannot even imagine based on our limited myopic view of what board games are today. We can't even imagine what they're going to be in 20 years. Yep. That's very cool. That's a good story, honey pie. Thanks. Well done. You should probably take the next question then. All righty. The next question is, is it worth it? But I guess there probably needs the to be some context. Is yes. All right. Whatever Chuck uh, asks. Oh, yes. This is uh, right. So Chuck asks, um, conventions like Gen Con and Origins, uh, they seem overcrowded and kind of money grabs. Why would a normal gamer like me, who mainly plays with his wife and kids, be inclined to attend a big time convention? What's the draw? Is it worth it? Could you put a few more emphases on a various syllable? Did I put the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable? Well, yeah, practically, there was. Is it worth it? Every syllable you were emphasizing. Chuck must know, honey. Well, I think it depends on which convention you've you're only going been to, to. One, you, you've the only big convention you've been to is. I mean, he's talking about the mega ones. He's not talking well, about. Zomberspell was really fun. Yeah, but it was not a big convention. I know. I'm just saying it was fun. Yeah. yeah okay. So, is we'll, we'll come back to that. The only big convention you've been to is Essen. Yes. You have been to it two times now, I believe. Three times. Three times. Um, for a normal gamer who just wants to play games with his wife and kids, yeah. is it worth it going to something like that? Um, well, actually, maybe. Is it only two? No, it's three. It's three. Um, yeah, because we stayed. Anyway. Anyway. Um, I, the first year that you and I went, yes. we actually combined it with part of our... Um, Road trip. Camper van holiday with the beagles and everything. Mm-hmm. And um, I was completely blown away by it. It was a lot of people, a lot of noise, a lot of it, just tons of activity, stuff to look at in every direction. So many other things that I didn't ever consider as gaming, um, kinds of related things. I mean, just everything is there. It's just incredible. It's it's like a feast for your imagination. So it was cool, but I mean, it was overwhelming. That's, there's definitely no getting around that. And I think even now I've gone was it worth it? three times, it's still overwhelming. Mm-hmm. I'm still happy to just only take it in bite-sized pieces. Um, is it worth it? 
Well, that first year. If you're, I mean, I mean, it's worth it for you now because you actually go there and you sell gamer glass, and I go there and I pick up games that we're going to review and all that. But putting that aside, if you and me were just, yeah. When because at that point we were just a couple of board game fans just and, looking for games to play with each other. We hadn't been playing that long. Yeah. So I know we picked up some games there. We certainly met some nice people. Yeah, but we could have picked up those games anywhere. Yeah. Mm. I remember being frustrated actually that at Essen in particular there wasn't really an ability to sit down and play many of the games. I mean, there's not even like room on the floor to play right. a game. Well, no, there's there's plenty of games to play. You just can't necessarily pick, play the games you want to play. I mean, we played plenty of games when we were there, but they were just like, oh, hey, there's an empty table. Let's play whatever this is. Oh, okay. That, okay. You probably remember better than I Yeah. So, no, we played several games, but... I, it's hard for me to answer that question. I think as a casual couples gamer, mm-hmm. I would maybe... I, I don't know. I mean, it's not like the owner or run, people who run Gen Con are going to be hanging on your every word saying, oh, my God, I hope she says yes, because if she says no, we're out of business. You can say what you think, honey pie. Well, the answer is no, it's not worth it. I don't think I want to. I would want to if I, because I didn't go back the second, third year when you went back. No. no. Yes. So I guess that's the proof is in the pudding. And that was pulling teeth to get you to say that. I'm not really quite sure why. Well, because I, I don't want to, you know, cut off somebody else's idea if just because it wasn't maybe for me. You answered a very specific question, though, of is do you think it is worth it for somebody who just wants to casually play games with his spouse and children to go to a big mega convention? Yeah, probably not. Yep. I would agree. It is definitely not. There are big crowds. And yes, you'll have an opportunity to play games and you'll be able to see a bunch of stuff. And it is a very, very... if, if you, I mean, I, I think the best reason to go is if you want to enjoy the spectacle. Uh, and, and just sit back and say, wow, look at this. Let it wash over me. The sea of humanity and this sea of games wasn't that an event in my life. But it's certainly not worth going to to because I must buy the latest games. I must have them now because you don't need them now. You can get them in three months when they come to you know, when they come out in retail channels. And then you can play them with your family instead of a bunch of strangers. I mean, the the, the reason it's worth going is if you are desperate to play the latest, hottest thing. With a bunch of strangers, so that you can make new well, acquaintances and relationships. Yeah, or you go if with that's your buddies. what you want, it's worth going. If even still, your buddies aren't going to be able to monopolize. You're going to go there and you're going to play with a lot of strangers. You're going to make new relationships. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of people love that kind of thing. Hey, I get going back every year and I see these people that I only see once a year because we always make time to make sure we play a game together. And that's all great. And if that's what you're looking for, that's what they're for. Doesn't sound, Chuck, like that's what you're looking for. So I would definitely say for you, it's not worth it. It really, really isn't. Okay, moving on to Ryan, who would like to know, first of all, as a Care Bear player, which type of game would you enjoy, oh yeah, this was an interesting one, would you and Jen choose if you had no other choices available? A game where you have no choice but to attack, like say, you know, a, a battle or, you know, a, a war, you know, like um, yeah. that Atlas Duel of Divinity, you know, where we built the, yeah, or... A game where you get to choose whether to attack or not, but attacking is actively encouraged, such as a Euro game that utilizes take-that mechanisms. I think I would rather play a game where you have absolutely no choice. You must attack. That is what the game is about. That is, you know, there's just nothing else to do but that. Because that is somebody else telling you you've got to do it, and it's not a personal thing. Yep. I would agree with that 110%. Um, Jen and I are known for being Care Bear players, and I mean, that just becomes sort of a blanket summary of 
of what, oh, they just must want to avoid conflict in any way, shape, or form. And that's not the case. As Caribou players, the number one thing we try to avoid at all costs is ripping each other's hard work down. Is yes. If Jen builds something, I don't want to destroy it because that is awful. That feels terrible. If Jen has, it feels terrible to have it done to you, but it feels terrible to do it. And that is something we absolutely abhor and see no reason for it. And now, what it means to build something, that could mean a little castle I built. It has all the functioning mechanisms and a place for all my workers to go, and it's wonderful. Or that could mean a really awesome hand of cards. And I've spent half the game getting the right set in my hand so that I can score 50 bajillion points. That is something that is just as concrete and meaningful. For you know, I built this thing. I'm about to score it. It's going to be awesome. I'm going to feel so justified, and it's going to be such a great. It's going to be a rush of endorphins that I, I you know, I've, I've achieved my goal. No, you're not, because I'm going to destroy that thing. Yep, because I get you to built. take three cards randomly from your hand. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and we hate that. Yeah. Now on the flip side, putting de- us down on a battlefield where Jen has 20 units and all they can do is move forward and hit my 20 units and I have 20 units and that's it. We got no problem with that. It's not something we necessarily enjoy. It's a rare game that we'll actually like because it's not what we're looking for. Cause there's this whole other element of care bareness. Neither of us want to sit down for 60 to 90 minutes and have all our thought bent <laughs> on how can I ruin and subvert their plans. Now, plans are a much more ethereal thing. They are not a concrete thing like the little castle I built or the perfect set of cards in my hand. Plans, they come and go. And if and so I don't feel quite as bad about destroying Jen's plans for what she wants to do, especially when her plans are devoted are entirely 100% about how she can destroy my plans. You know, it just becomes a plan-destroying feedback loop, and that's okay. It's not something that we say, oh my god, I can't wait to sit down and come up with a new way to thwart her plans. But if the game itself is good enough, we can live with it. And we do have a there. We have some conflict-heavy games on our board. Someday I'll do our top ten conflict games. Or you can just go to games.rado.com and just you'll see all our games sorted or by my preferences, and you'll see yeah, there's a bunch of hardcore in your face. Um, punch each other's. But the, we don't like them because th- their very nature means, hey, I get to spend all my time trying to outthink you and outmaneuver you and sh- be ensured that everything you did comes to naught and I come out on top. It's not like we're implicitly liking that at all. It's just that some games that feature that are so phenomenally stellar that we will put up with that. Yeah. So yes, I would agree with Jen. I would choose the latter over the, the former over the latter, Ryan. Moving on to Zopi. Zopi. Zopi has two questions. <clears throat> Do you have any hints or tips for teaching games? Jen never teaches games. You have taught one game once, I think. Yeah. And you don't even remember it. No, it was I, in I Greece. Had to... It was in Greece. Yes, and you... Yeah. Well, you, Jen at one point Glory taught to Glory to Rome. Yeah. That's a tough game to teach. Do you have any tips? Not anymore. <laughs> no, I didn't I, even know how that happened. You I were put in that so situation. that I have this wonderful person who likes to read manuals and figure it out. <laughs> I don't like to do it. It's just my job. Um, but anyway. But yeah, um, well, before it was your job, you still did it. Mm-hmm. I suppose, Well, I wrote manuals back then. No, I'm just saying from day one. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. read the manuals? Sure, sure, sure. Yes, it, that, yeah, that is my job in our board gaming hobby pastime. Because if I don't do it, it's not going to get done. Jen does not like games enough to learn how to play a game. You, you simply don't. I don't know. 
I think if I did one a month or something, I, I would do that. All right. But not one a day. Okay. I, I don't know because seeing as how Jen's never actually done it, I think she <laughs> uh, might find when she's actually sitting oh. down and trying to decipher a board manuals, game manual. I would just toss yeah. them in the tr- yep, exactly. The manuals, not exactly. the game. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So anyway, I will answer this question and then you could answer with um, tips that you could point out based because you have, you have probably 20 games taught to you a month. So you should definitely be able to talk from that perspective. The number one thing I try to do when I am teaching somebody how to play a game, and this actually kind of cycles back to that we were talking about Dixit earlier, is I try to explain everything in thematic terms. I sit down, and the first thing I say is, right, this is who we are. Instantly, oh, we're a banker. Oh, we're a storyteller. Oh, we're a... We're running a hospital. We're running a hospital. Uh, Oh, but we're a doctor or we're an administrator. If if I, the first thing I would say is, okay, we are administrators of a hospital or we are doctors working in a hospital. You have to start with that. As soon as you do that, it becomes infinitely easier for your audience to um, absorb everything that you're going to say afterwards because every single thing that you describe that is just about the raw mechanisms of rules X, Y, and Z and how they interrelate, they can circle back and apply them to write, oh, I'm a doctor. I understand. Because I'm a doctor, X means Y means Z. Without that first bit of information, X means Y means Z is just dry, boring calculus or algebra, yep. and, uh, and it's awful. And it beca- and, uh, Now, I know there are some players, don't waste my time with theme. Just give me a very clear, rote, dry presentation of every single rule so that I can um, internalize and create my own working b- mind map of it. And yeah, there are some people who like that, and honestly, those are not people I play games with. I think the majority of people are going to be able to absorb a game much better if every single thing you describe, you explain in the term of theme. So when you say, okay, uh, and we're going to play five rounds, even if the rule book doesn't say it, say we're doctors in a, hotel, or in, in a hospital and we are going to be playing through five years. As soon as you say that, the five locks in. Right, okay, it's going to be five years. It's going to be about the growth of the hospital over five years, and every year we're going to do something. That is infinitely more easy to digest and absorb and remember than saying, we're going to play through five rounds. Each round has three phases, and each phase you get seven actions to choose from. I've heard people explain rules that way. Oh my God, what is wrong with you? Say, we are going to play for five years. Each year, we're going to have three seasons because um, winter, there's not really much going on. So each year, we're going to have three seasons or, or you know, however you want to break it down. I always try to find breaking it down into concrete, real-world, meaningful things every step of the way. Um, you know, There are times when I'm describing something and there's some rule and I'm saying, oh, there's this. And I realize at the moment I'm describing it, oh, right, because you understand, because we're doctors, that means that's why we can't do this thing. Because, of course, it would break our Hippocratic Oath. (laughs) You know, and whether that's true or not is completely immaterial. You say that and people say, right, our Hippocratic Oath, I've heard of that. I understand how doctors work. I understand these rules. That is the number one thing you can do. And that is a thing that so many 
rules explainers get wrong and so many rules get wrong. It drives me nuts. When I went to the University of Washington. My major was scientific and technical communication. I studied how to communicate ideas to people a lot and how to take dry, boring, abstract, scientific concepts and convert them into something that people can absorb. That's the same thing as trying to understand most board game manuals and teach them. <laughs> uh, and I don't understand every uh, 99%. I mean, who gets this? Vlada Shavadl gets this. Every one of his rule books are a joy to read because every he he actually puts characters in his rule books that explains, well, the reason this is is because I'm really hungry. And if I'm really hungry, that means I always have to eat at least five cubes. I have to collect five cubes out of the pool every time because I'm so hungry. <laughs> yeah, I just made that up. But you could say, now remember, you have a minimum. You have to collect at least five cubes from the pool every turn. Or you could say, remember, we're starving monsters. And um, we will we will die if we don't take at least five cubes. <laughs> that is the number one bit of advice I can give for teaching rules. It, it, it trumps everything else. I know there's a lot of other really common things. Like another really common one is, first thing you do, explain how you win. No, that's the second thing you do. The first thing you do is say, who are we and where are we? And then, third or fourth thing. And by the way, here's what we're trying to do. Which is another way of saying, how do you win? Yeah. Um, saying, how do you win? And about, well, yeah, but who am I? Where am I? Uh, you just told me I have to... So 14 that's my number one bit of advice among everything. My second bit of advice is, and this is a hard one to do, and I break this rule all the time, and I kick myself internally every time I do it. Um, whenever anybody asks a question, don't just say, yeah, 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 I'll get to that. Answer that question right then. Because your viewer cannot move on. They can't move on. If you don't answer that question, they're just going to be stuck on that. And everything you say afterwards is in one ear, out the other. Because they're still fixated on the exactly. question. Exactly. Because you didn't. Okay. Okay. Finally, you answered my question. Now, what else did you say in the meantime? Yep. Uh, that is a crucial mistake. Answer the question when it's asked. There's two reasons. Yep. That reason, and also because if their brain is, however the cogs of their brain works, meant they had to understand that right then. Yep. If you give them that information right then, you will be simpatico with them. You will be in sync and in tune, and everything will go smoother from that point on. Yep. I mean, they're asking the question because they're, they're, they need that information. Yeah. When I say they, I mean me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and it's true. I mean, although and, you know, Jen will stop and ask me questions. And I know it can be really annoying, um, but you, you got to do it. Or at the very least, give them a carrot. Say, you know what? That's a good question. That is literally the next topic. As soon as we finish this, it's going to be the number one topic. Because mm. uh, it's literally, and even if it's not the next topic, shift the teaching around and make that your next topic. If you absolutely have to finish a topic you're on, promise that, okay, I, let me just finish this a little bit, and that'll be the very next thing. And then their brain can say, right, okay, I can put that on the shelf for a little bit, and I can continue to focus on what I'm hearing. Yep. That's the number one thing you have to do. And I don't understand. I never hear people explain this. That is the key to being a good rules teacher. Next up, and that's how I would teach you Dixit. Next up, how does dual citizenship thing, how does the dual citizenship thing work when it comes to elections? Do you vote in the U.S. elections? If so, in which state's primary? Hmm. Um, yes, we can. And it's the state that you were last um, registered as a voter in, which, which is for Texas. us is, yeah, it's Texas. Yes. Unfortunately, a red state, but well, we looked around actually to see, cause you know, we lived in Oregon, Washington and Texas yeah. and um, you can't choose. Yeah. It's, it's the last one yeah. that you're in. We have talked about, we should move to a battleground state, live there for six months and then leave. <laughs> 
Well, actually, we thought, well, maybe we could use my parents' address in Arizona. Yeah. Because that one, maybe we could have made a small difference. Yeah. But. Well, now that's not fair. Every vote counts. Even our blue votes in the red state of Texas, they count. Vote. Um, anyway, um, so that's our state primary. That's how it works. Uh, he also asked, can you vote in Malta, the U.S., both or neither? Um, we were actually, actually surprised. Yes. We didn't realize we can vote in Malta. We yep. totally missed the most recent um, referendum. Yeah, and that was a really important one, and it was a really close one, too, yep. about bird hunting. Yeah. And we only found out, like, two days before, and there wasn't enough time to register and all. But we, we have been in Malta long enough. But we have to remember, we are, uh, we are American citizens, and we are also European citizens. Yep. We carry U.S. and British passports. So I, I'm sure if we were just pure U.S., we would not be able to vote locally. But we are members of the EU. Malta is an EU nation. We are from an EU nation, so we can vote in Malta. I, I don't know what it was. We just, got a, we just got a letter in the mail saying yep. we could do it. We never figured we'd be able to. Nope. And we can still vote in um, England as well. Yep. Yep. So we can vote in... We can affect the outcomes of three mighty nations. We are international. We are powerful. Powerhouses. We are power brokers. Woo! All right. Okay. John would like to know... Um, how do you get the most out of BoardGameGeek.com? What should beginners know when using BoardGameGeek.com? And uh, any tips and tricks to get the most out of BoardGameGeek.com would be appreciated. Honey, I don't believe you've ever been on BoardGameGeek.com. Uh, I, I think I sometimes, occasionally, every once in a while, I'll mm -hmm. look at it. Yep. When, you, when something exciting is going on. Yeah. Let's see. I... You have I a have, husband who's really into it and, and tells you to go look at it. There you go. <laughs> the um, Someday I'm actually going to do a run-through of BoardGameGeek.com. I've just been waiting for the new interface to get rolled out, and it seems like it's going to be any day now because I'd like it to be... I'd, I'd like, I wouldn't want to put that out, and then in three months it's obsolete because they totally changed the interface. Um, so until I do that, my main... Well, okay, it depends on what you're coming to BoardGameGeek.com. The first time you come to BGG... I would assume it is either A, because you have gotten a game and you have questions about it. In which case, the number one thing you need to know is how to find that game. The search bar is at the top of the list. Just go in, ignore everything on that front page. That's the first bit. Ignore everything on the front page of BoardGameGeek because it is information overload. It is ridiculous. It is overkill. The first, I mean, if you've come just looking for a game, then, um, you know, search for the game, go to that page. If you have questions, what you need to do is um, click on the link at the top of that game page. It says forms and go to the forms. And then you'll be in something that is a little bit primitive, but for the most part represents what you see in lots of other places online. You see discussion groups where um, people are talking about a variety of topics. There are subforms for general information, for rules questions, which is chances are why you came, because you had a rule question. So find your way to the game, then to the forms, and then to the appropriate subform about whether you're looking for strategy advice, whether you're looking for rules help, whether you just have some general purpose question. Then get in there, and if you don't see it, ask the question, and guaranteed some friendly person will answer. That's if you're coming in but from that. Another reason you might be coming in is because you've recently discovered board games, and you said, wow, board games are awesome. I wonder what I should buy now. Oh my god, there's five billion of them. Ah! Oh, no! What do I do? Well, again... Find that game that you like. Um, you know, and this is what I did. I, you know, I did this five years ago. I found Pandemic by almost by accident, fell in love with it, 
decided, hey, I want more like this. I went to Board Game Geek, um, and it was a very, very deep pool that you get thrown into. Best thing you can do at that point is find the page for Pandemic, or you know, whatever your game is that brought you in, and now you're looking for your second game, right? So you find Pandemic. That's not going to be very hard. Now, you're not coming here for the forum. Instead, you are coming... Well, there, well there's a couple things you could be looking for. There are um, recommendations Board Game Geek will make. It, I think it used to be something they were pushing really, really hard, but it, it, it doesn't really work that well. But let's see. I'm actually looking at Pandemic's page right now. Reco-man-rec-r-e-c-o. I know somewhere on this page there's a thing that says, hey, if you like this game, you might want to try that game. Where is it? Heck, have they taken them out? Maybe it's gone. It might be gone. I know this used to exist, that games like this game existed. But I'm not seeing it anymore, so maybe it's long, long gone. So then here's what I would suggest you do. You find that you have a game you like, you're looking for a new game, go to that page, and at the top of the game, there's going to be a bunch of information, like when the game was published, who was the designer, how many players, how long does it play, blah, 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 lots and lots and lots of stuff. But what you're going to find is a list of mechanisms. I'm looking at Pandemic. It's action to point allowance, cooperative play, hand management, point-to-point movement, variable player powers. That's the mechanisms of Pandemic. What I would suggest then is, if you like Pandemic, and that was your gateway game, what of those mechanisms are interesting to you? And um, I said, well, I know what was interesting to me, cooperative. I click on that, and then boom, I go to a list of every single cooperative game in history uh, on BoardGameGeek. Now, this is still way overwhelming. Probably too overwhelming, but it gives you an idea of where you could start. This list, you could sort it by rank, and then choose the ones at the top of the list. The ones that Board Game Geek are the be- say are the best, hey, chances are those might be a good place to start. Find another high-ranked cooperative game. Another thing you can do is, that search bar that you used originally, click Advanced Search instead of Search, and you'll find that, hey, I can click by Mechanic. And if you expand that, where's that co-op? Say I want to find other co-op games. But then also say that I want to find co-op games, if you click category, that are set in the American Civil War or set in ancient times or are horror. So click horror and co-op because you like horror and you know you like co-op. Do a search and then suddenly you're going to start finding games you like. I think that's where you start. Eventually... Because those are the main uses people come to BoardGameGeek originally, is discovery. I need help with the game I've got, or I'm looking for new games. Once you're there, and once you kind of get comfortable, as you're doing this, you'll start discovering other things along the way. Any, create an account for yourself, and anytime you find something that's interesting, subscribe to it. You like Pandemic? Subscribe to Pandemic. Every time anybody talks about Pandemic, you'll get a notification about it, and you'll start learning other stuff. And that will start making you introduced to other areas. Those would be my initial... Um, suggestions for how to get the most out of board game geek at this point. Uh, you know, learn how to just learn how to find the information you're there for. Don't bother like just going swimming and seeing, going exploring and seeing what you'll find. There's just too much. You'll drown. Go find a figure out how to find what you're looking for, and then over time start testing the waters and going down some dead ends and seeing what else you'll get. That would be the best I can do at this point. Um, however, there's going to be a pretty significant radical. Interface overhaul that will make um, absorbing information a little bit better. And maybe things will change at that point. I don't know. But anyway, that was it for John. Moving on to Peter. Okie dokie. Peter says, ah, 
Uh, we've just moved to London two months ago and are still trying to discover everything the city can offer. What would be your recommendations for things to do or see? Not the usual tourist things, but something different. Only a Londoner would know about. Mm. Uh, and I'm sure you're asking that because you're thinking, hey, we lived in England for 10 years. We must know a lot about London. Honey, I'll let you take that question. I love London. It's your favorite city in the world. It is my favorite city. My favorite thing to do is just go into London and walk around. I just love being in the old areas and seeing the architecture and um, the somewhat organic way things kind of have grown. And all of the little n niches and, oh, I just, I just adore it. <laughs> um, I don't really have specific places. To That's the problem. Neither of us do. We, we, could, we could recommend all the tourist places. We thought the Globe Theater was awesome. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> basically, you go to Waterloo and you just start walking. Yeah. I would actually amend that um, or add to that because I would agree. That's really about the best thing you can do. Um, and the thing is, we did not live in London. I worked in London, but that meant I spent all my day inside an office. And I only ever saw London, um, one very <laughs> narrow strip of it, as I moved from the office to the train station to get back to Guilford. But the other thing I would suggest that I found to be true, do not rely so much on the tube. Rely on buses. Mm -hmm. You see a lot more. Because buses are awesome. Yep. Uh, you go underground, you lose, well, you lose your internet connection. So you can't look things up if you have a question. If something, oh, that sounds really cool, that poster. Oh, I can't look it up because I have no internet access. Ride a bus. Um, you have nonstop internet access and you see so much. Yep. And you'll get there. It'll take you a little bit longer. So leave a little bit earlier and take the bus. They've, um, the mayor of London has just published a map, too, that's um, talking about walking instead of tubing. Because oftentimes it takes you longer to actually get on a tube yeah. and take take the the route than it would just with the connections to and all that. Yeah, yeah. To a place. So I, if anybody's interested, I can dig up that bookmark and um, give it to the husband to put on the the links. Let us know. All right. Well, they can't let us know because we will have posted this and then they will hear the answer. This is no one's listening to us live at this point. No. Well, they can they can put comments in. Early. I'll put, I'll get the link from Jen. I'll put that in the okay. show notes. The London walking map, I guess. Yep. Okay, that's it for Peter. Moving on to David. David says things and stuff. Ooh. All right. Constantly to try new games. He does this sometimes uh, when he's reading manuals too. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, David asks, have we ever have I ever considered a stretch goal or pledge level for my yearly fundraising that would allow Jen and I to spend more time with a couple of games we really like rather than always moving forward onto the new games like a shark? Um, I have to say no, I haven't. And I mean, to, the, the underlying question there is, because it's something I've mentioned a few times, as David mentions in his question, is that I'm constantly moving forward. We rarely get to revisit old games. And that's definitely true. And I'll be honest, you can play the world's smallest violin for me about that because I really don't mind. I like new things. I like, I mean, one of the reasons I do Rottle Runs through is because it gives me the opportunity to constantly experience new games and learn new games. It's interesting. I would much rather play a new game than play a new expansion to a game I already know. I would f find that more fun, learning something completely new and out of the blue. And if it's an expansion, I would definitely rather play an expansion that adds radically new stuff to the game rather than an expansion that just adds a bunch more of the same. So for me, it's not really a problem. Now, it is a bit of a problem for Jen 
But I don't think it's a big problem. It's a big I know problem. it's kind of a, a, a slight regret. You have a, a tiny bit of ennui that you wish we played Agricola and Dungeon Pets more than we currently do. Well, but we also have the rest of our lives to play. It's true. Sooner or later, I'm going to stop doing this. And at that point, we'll have 500 games. That will be enough games even if we never buy another game for the rest of our lives. Yep. And we're only in our 40s, and we're going to be living to well over 100. <laughs> yeah. So there's plenty of time to circle back around. That's that is definitely true. Yep. We have enough games on our shelves right now that if we played a new one new game or played one of them every day, we wouldn't get them all played over the course of a year. Yeah. They're yeah. And these are the, are the, the these are the ones, ones we really that like. Cold. Yeah. We yeah. Really like. Yep. So no, I, I haven't really because I'm I don't have a problem with it. It's it, it would be nice to be able to see what am I looking at. I would like to play Nations more often than I currently do, and because I really really like it a lot. Actually, any of my top ten. I'm sure the same is true for Jen. We haven't played Bruges in forever. Jen loves Bruges so much. Yeah, actually, and she loves Fresco so much. Yeah, my birthday, we I kind of took a look at there. and But I love Pandemic. Yeah. So we played an expansion. For we Pandemic. played a very odd combination of expansions in Pandemic. It was Pandemic. so much fun, though. I it worked out time. really well. Yep. It was the... Um, it the was brink. It was the... Bi- Jen was the bioterrorist from On the Brink. I was playing by myself. I was the regular medic supplemented by the CDC solo card from in the lab and we were playing on our pandemic legacy board. <laughs> so it was mixing three radically different things and it worked fantastically. It was really, really good. Um, I would love to play Forge War more. I, I, I would, but tech, we haven't played Fortuna in over two years and that was a lovely game. I would love to get that out. I'd love to get New Amsterdam out. Well, we Every single it. one of the games I'm looking at, there's not a single game I wouldn't like to play right now. Yep. We but, just played with Linny and Harsko. Oh yeah, we just we just played. Uh, what was it on her birthday? Because she out of the blue wanted to play it. Pathfinder adventure card game, um, just completely out of the blue because I never got rid of it. Um, so we're fine. Don't worry for us. Play that smallest violin. We're going to be okay. Although maybe he's saying that he wants to view more um, expanded gameplay or something like that, like mm. like something beyond an intro game. Maybe he would like to see that. I don't know if is that yeah. what you're saying. Um, at the end, well, he did, he did ask about that, but I, that's the thing. I mean, I do enjoy playing the new stuff. I, I am, a, I'm addicted to the hotness. I love the cult of the new. So as much as I, I regret not getting to play the games I love more, I very much enjoy getting to play the new games as well. Last question for Maria. Although of course, Maria asks three questions. <laughs> the last three questions. Um, what board game related podcast do you subscribe to? What other reviewers do you find you have similar taste to your own? Um, I only listen to two podcasts. Only one of them is board game related. Jen, I think she listens to like three different podcasts and none of them are board game related. Yeah. I listen to just the, the bog standard dice tower. Um, I listen to it, although to be honest, I fast forward through three quarters of it. No, no offense to everybody making content. That's great. It's just most of the topics, you know, how to make your own game grouper really have no particular meaning to me. I, I like lists. Um, I, I think I enjoy them as much as Tom Bassel does. So I listen to Dice Tower, but not most of it. And I listen to the Cracked podcast because it's beyond awesome. It is absolutely a phenomenal podcast. Jen listens to The Freak- Motley Fool. No, Freakonomics. Oh, Freakonomics, right. The Freakonomics and... 
Tim Ferriss. Tim Ferriss. Those are the two you listen to regularly. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I have listened to some others. I've listened to Heavy Cardboard, and I thought those guys were great. And I've, I've uh, listened to Rolling Dice. I've, I've listened to most all of them, at least a little bit. But the reality is I don't have time to listen to podcasts. The only time I listen to podcasts is when we take the dogs for a walk, which Jen um, is very patient about because I, I only put one earbud in. <laughs> and so we're walking along, and we're walking the dogs, and we're enjoying the scenery, and we're talking about various things. But I'm also listening to a podcast at the same time because that's literally the only chance I have to listen to podcasts. Jen listens to podcasts when she is working on glass. So she has hours and hours and hours of time to listen to podcasts. And she doesn't understand, I only have the walks to listen to podcasts. <laughs> uh, so I, I'm, I'm always behind. I just don't have time to listen to more. I imagine I would listen to bunches and bunches of them, though, if I was still doing my daily four-hour commute from Guilford to Bromley. Yep. Because I, I do enjoy them. I enjoy listening to people talking about them. As for who I find in the board game... Um, reporter community that has similar taste to mine. Uh, well, the heavy cardboard guys are, are, have pretty good taste. Joel Eddy, well, I, I agree with him half the time. I rarely agree with Tom um, or Z or Sam. But that's just because they have different tastes. Right. I mean, who, who am I simpatico with? Uh, amazingly... Uh, uh, Nick from Board Game Brawl. I often find myself agreeing with him, which would be a surprise to people who are longtime fans of the show. And, uh, oh, I think uh, Tiffany Ralph is, she's got excellent taste. Uh, these, these questions are, I mean, I really should make a, I should probably do, I should put on my top 10 list, top 10 board game reviewers slash podcasters slash whatever's. Uh, and really think about long and hard because I'm sure there are lots that I really strongly agree with and I'm just not thinking of them right now because they're just not springing to mind. But uh, hopefully that'll do for Maria's question. Question number two. What do you think about the prices um, in game in retail channels? Do you find new games to be too expensive? Do you have a price limit beyond which you will consider purchasing a game? Well, we are not ideally suited to answer that question because at this point I am successful enough the Rado runs through that I get probably about 70% maybe even 80% of all the games we get for free so I'm really out of touch and that's something you always have to bear in mind when you listen to somebody like me or Tom Vassal or Rodney Smith I mean we all buy some games you know with our own money but we get a lot of games for free so I don't really feel qualified to answer that question, which is why I never talk about the cost of games because I can't justify the cost of games based on people who have a lot of disposable income and pay a lot will think it's perfectly reasonable to pay $120 for a game with a lot of minis like Myth or what have you, and other people won't. So that's a very... It's personal, and I don't mean personal at all. I'm trying to be secretive. I've been personal, and just everybody's view on that is going to be different. I guess my broad thing is whenever I see the price of a game, my immediate response is, oh... I'm sure that's reasonable. Um, and if it's not, I wouldn't buy it. Um, one of the reasons I started doing Rado Runs Through is because I knew when we were going to be retired, I wouldn't be able to keep on buying games because we couldn't afford the bonus, them, yeah. not on our super frugal salary. And I kind of, in the back of my head, had hopes that, hey, maybe if this gets popular enough, a few publishers will send me games, and those will be the new games we get every year. And as it happens, that has worked out. So I'm not, not going to make any secret about that. So I am out of touch with the reality of the cost of board games. Um, I can certainly say board games are too expensive for us. But that's because I don't work full-time. When I was still working full-time and we were early in the game, I was, I was paying like three or $4,000 a year on new games. 
Um, th those first 100 or 200 games we got, I bought every single one of them. And I did not blink. It didn't bother me for a second to pay that much money because they were that much fun. Yep. $50 for a game seems perfectly reasonable for me for the amount of entertainment it will give you for two people yep. compared to any other um, you know, entertainment investment stream. And that's including stuff like, you know, fire and forget games like Time Stories. I think Time Stories, the pricing on that's perfectly reasonable. If I did have to pay for them, um, and in fact, actually, it's going to be an interesting thing because I don't know if I'm going to get review copies of the uh, new Dragon Age thing, and I know Jen wants to play them. I know I would not think twice about buying the Dragon Age expansions because after I'm done with them, I can just sell them. So it seems fine to me, largely. But again, I don't have a pot to piss in here because I get 70 or 80% of my games for free. Well, let's talk about Legacy, though, Pandemic Legacy. What would you like to talk about Legacy? Well, because that, I don't even know how much it was for, but um, people were saying it's a, you know, you pay, you pay all this money and you play it only once. Well, but they're wrong. We've I, proven you can keep, you can play Legacy forever. I know, but what I'm saying is, what was it, 60 bucks or something? 70 bucks? I don't know. We got, I, those are review copies I got. I don't exactly. know how much it costs. We got them for free. But anyway, whatever it was, we've gotten more enjoyment. Yeah, I think game. it's like 70 in, or MSRP. What the heck? I'll go to board game prices, which I mentioned Ooh. earlier. Yeah, I'm, so once you find a game that you love, it's the amount that you've paid for the game is, becomes minuscule. And the ones that you don't love sell on. And, you know, you'll get half your money back at worst or something. Yeah. So. Yeah, Pandemic Legacy is 50 bucks. Okay, well, maybe it was more expensive. Well, I mean, fall. yeah, but that's looking at board game price. That's, I'm sure it's MSRP is probably something like 60 or 70. Okay. So if you bought it in a store, but if you buy it online, it's 50 bucks. Yeah. and Or 45 bucks, really. And, yeah, I mean, that's, that's unassailable. That is such great. If I wasn't doing router runs through, but we had still gone on ahead and retired anyway, Honestly, I think it would be a very good spiritual cleansing of the soul exercise to have to take the hard choice of, you know what, I can only buy five games every year. Mm, and make sure that they're... Yeah, and they'd be the five gosh darn best games they could possibly be. And okay, I, no, I get 10 games, but five of them I have to get rid of. <laughs> I would think that would be something like that would be mm. reasonable. Oh, yeah, or whatever. You know, I mean, because, yeah, they're, they're too expensive for us on our retire in our mid-40s. Um, income levels because yeah. we could, we would not be able to do it. We'd be able to have one game a month or something like something that. Something like that, yeah. yeah. I mean, heck, I remember, <laughs> circling all back around, back when we lived in Seattle, when we were in college and we got married, oh, I remember yes. it, I, you imposed a strict <gasps> one video game a month <laughs> purchasing limit back in the NES days. Yes, you did. I wouldn't have imposed that limit on myself. I know, but it was for the common good. It was, And it was good for me too. <laughs> I mean, I think it's very unhealthy the gotta get them all attitude that is very easy. It's it's it the siren song of this cardboard and oh I gotta get oh that oh, that's even more amazing. Who can, doesn't have to be what you already have is amazing. And like I said, um, I'm a full on atheist, but I do think it would be a good um, spiritual lightning to try to shed oneself of the need to get every single game to say no I only get to buy five games a year or whatever. Or ten games a year, and I have to get rid of five of them, and uh, and stick to that because there there will be enough years worth of entertainment in those five games. Um, so, like I said, it's it's hard to say because um, we are really out of touch with reality. Ask me again in ten years when Rattle Runs Through is no more. Number three, what are your favorite online stores to purchase games to ship within Europe? There is nobody that compares to Filibertnet. Dot com, I believe. I think that's how you spell it. Uh, P-H-I-L-I-B-E-R-T-N-E-T dot com. 
Phil Ibert Net. They are located in France. I recommend them highly because they have by far the best shipping options to Malta. And uh, they have reasonable prices, which any American would look at and say, oh my God, all prices in Europe are absolutely bonkers insane, because they are. Americans don't know how good they've got it. They never do. And, uh, but philabertnet.com by far, in my, my experience from my research, I've done the best. Cosimshop.de was awesome, but they've closed down. So philabert.net, FTW. And that is it, folks. We have come to the end of the Q&A. We have talked nonstop for a hundred and third, no, um, an hour and 35 minutes. And now I am going to go get some water because we still have to do our top 10. Okay, welcome back, everybody. It's actually the next day. I just couldn't go on any longer. And to be honest, Jen didn't really have much interest in talking about this particular topic. So I think I'm back to flying solo. In fact, I know originally the deal from last year was that Jen was going to participate in all of my top 10 videos. And then we kind of switched it for, oh, no, not top 10 videos, top 10 recaps in the podcast, but I think she has discovered she much prefers to be involved in the Q&As. So for the few remaining podcasts of this year, I think Jen will be fulfilling her Kickstarterly duties by jumping in on various and sundry Q&A topics. So keep those questions coming, folks, to questions at rotto.com. And now on to the big, massive six-topic catch-up for top tens where basically the original intent was every month I do a top 10 video and then a week or two later, I, after people have responded and asked questions or made interesting points or whatnot, I do a follow-up in the podcast. And here I am, in some cases six months later, finally following up on six different topics, starting with my top 10 civilization games. Where, well right off the bat, a lot of people asked about what about XYZ and almost always it was a case, as I said in the video, where yeah, that's a good civilization game, but we're not interested because it features too much fighting. Uh, you know, Even games like Deus or um, Golden Ages, which have only a small modicum of fighting, is too much fighting for me and Jen. So that's why many of those games didn't make the list. But aside from that, actually there was one really interesting point that somebody made. Let me see if I can find it. It was in the YouTube comments. Right. Uh, it was from uh, Goya Solidar, who kind of took exception to my including Mirmes on the list, which is a game, of course, about ant, co ant colonies. And I argued in the video that, well, hey, who says this has to be about human civilizations? Why not ant civilizations? And Goya pointed out, an ant colony constitutes a society, not a civilization. Which was an interesting point. I don't really, I have to admit, it never occurred to me the difference between a society and a civilization. And in fact, I did a little bit of searching online and didn't really come up with any kind of concrete, consistent definition of the differences between those two. Societies are pretty clearly defined, but civilization, there's a lot of different ways you can quantify what defines a civilization. So I eventually gave up on trying to confirm whether Goya was right or not by the classic or the, the Webster definition of civilization and instead decided to go by the board game geek 
definition of civilization. And I quote, civilization games often have players developing and managing a society of people, or in this case, ants. The aim of each player is usually to employ citizens in ways that are beneficial to society and have them progress through the game so that their civilization gains superiority over others. Boom. Mirmes is all about that. Just replace people with ants. So I stand by it. Goya, you lose, I win. Although I suspect you probably are right in the grander, more philosophical um, perspective. But from the board game perspective, officially, a civilization game, Mirmes is. And an excellent one, too. Let's see, was there anything else worth calling out? I, that was the really the, uh, I thought, the most interesting one. Oh, and a lot of people, so many people asked about Through the Ages. And, um, you know, fair enough. Through the Ages is a brilliant game. Vlachavadal's masterpiece. Still loved it. Recently got its big, very cool reprint where a lot of the rules were updated and streamlined and stuff like that. And I have to admit, I have not tried that. I'm not really interested in trying it for one reason. Nations kills through the ages for me and Jen. It takes a fraction of the time. And, um, you know, the warfare or the way warfare is implemented in nations, which I talked about in the top 10, is done in such a way that Jen and I find really quite pleasant, very clever, and not at all off-putting. Through the ages does warfare in a more traditional very, for us, off-putting way. Even with the new updated Through the Ages, it hasn't changed. Now, Through the Ages can be played with the warfare turned off entirely. And that's an official variant that players are allowed to do. And in fact, that's why we did hold on to Through the Ages for quite a while. But the reality is, even two things about that. One, when you remove the warfare element from Through the Ages, the game is still solid. The game is still fun. But I certainly found that in the back of my mind, I was always wondering... Yeah, is the game as tight and as solid as it should be? Clearly, we're not playing it the way it was originally designed. Is this having ramification, knock-ons that we are unaware of or that I'm unaware of? And, you know, it always kind of hampered my ability to enjoy it. Uh, But, you know, we still kept it. But the bigger problem was Through the Ages is so long, so very, very, very long, and Nations does everything Through the Ages does, but it does it in so much less time and in a way that we find so much more pleasant that that's why Through the Ages didn't make it on the list since so many people asked about that. Oh, another question people asked about, hey, if I put Race for the Galaxy on the list, why not Roll for the Galaxy? What's up with that? Jen is actually looking at me, mouth agape, aghast. But she's already said she has nothing to say about these top 10 topics. So I will answer um, that the reason Roll did not make it, whereas Race did, is because at the end of the day, I mean, don't get me wrong, I uh, both Jen and I enjoy Roll more than Race. I do think two things, though. Race is the better game. Roll is the game we enjoy more, but race is the better, deeper, more interesting, more intricate, uh, more rewarding of the two. You know, I mean, race roll is just race on steroids. It's 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 a lighter version that is just kind of fun, and you know, hugely enjoyable, of course. But race is the better game. So there's that. And then there's also the fact that when I'm playing Race for the Galaxy, I do feel like I'm making a big star-faring civilization. I, I, I get that connection to the theme a lot more than I do in Roll. In Roll, it's so fast. I mean, that is a hyper-fast game. That is a game that Jen and I can play from start to finish in 15 minutes. And um, we do tend to find that we just focus on the dice. The, now that we have played it so much, 
that you don't really get a sense of building civilization. Usually what will happen is after we have finished a game of role, we'll sit there and look and say, well, here's what I built. And, uh, but, you know, you, we, that disappears until the end of the game. You feel it during race. And that's why I would consider race to be the superior civilization game. Overall, so there was that as well. Let's see. Oh, and a lot of people are hoping, hoping, hoping for uh, what's it? Imperial settlers. You know, actually, I believe it was in the background on the video as I was filming because I I had recently won a copy of Settlers in a contest, and so you know we had every intention of trying it. And I know people are saying, "Oh, fingers crossed for Settlers." I'm sorry to say, folks, didn't make it. We have we actually have to say we have actually played Settlers or Imperial Settlers, Imperial Settlers twice. We played it once at Zomerspell last year as a four-player game, and we didn't get to finish it. But right off the bat, it did everything we expected it was going to do. Smart game, really good gameplay, too much meanness. We eventually got our own copy, tried it again, didn't even finish the game. Uh, you know, by the, by the way, we were to the halfway point. We're like, yeah, this is clearly not a game that either of us are enjoying. Not anything to do with the quality of the gameplay. It's very sharp, very clever. Has everything to do with the meanness factor implicit in that game. Even when you play with the peaceful variant, there are still so many mean, nasty, take that, screw you cards in there that it just, it's a non-starter. So anyway, folks, that is it. For top 10 civilization. Now, let us move on to the next top 10 topic. Surprise games. Which was a surprising video for the film because I filmed it from London Heathrow while I was stuck on my epic, whatever it was, 14-hour layover. Yeah, I did eventually make it home. And in fact, I think most people's responses, there wasn't really a, a lot of conversation about, well, yeah, but what about this? Weren't you surprised by X, Y, or Z? You know, I mean, the topic really didn't lend itself to that very much. There's more people were commenting about, yes, we were also surprised by that game and whatnot. So I don't really think there's much to add about top 10 surprises. Although, let's see, actually, let me look at what my list was back then, because I think there might be a new game that might have made the list if we had played it. Nope, we had not played it at that time. We only played it once I made it back from that epic trip, and that was Apocalypse Chaos. Had we played it, Apocalypse Chaos might very well have made that top 10 list. Pushing out, I guess, the big book of madness. Yeah, you know what? I think I'm going to stand by that. Apocalypse Chaos was a bigger surprise to us than the big book of madness because that was a game, while I, I, I was cautiously optimistic getting it when I picked it up at Essen, I didn't think we had a chance. Well, I, I knew I was going to like it. I knew I was going to like it. I was very confident from having read the rules, seeing how the system worked, but I knew Jen was going to hate it. I just knew it in my heart of hearts deep down in my bones and surprise she loved it we both loved it because it is an absolutely phenomenal co-op um you know uh was it tower defense hold off the hordes of aliens uh, puzzle game and it's true jen certainly did not like the theme which i didn't expect her to but the game itself is so good she was willing to put that aside and it's true jen is generally not one to appreciate games that have unrelenting waves of bad guys that just beat you down ghost story style but again this game is so good she was willing to put her distaste for that aside it's a phenomenal game i would have to say it now updates and takes comes in at number 10 Apocalypse Chaos. Okay, and so that was it for that top 10. Let's move on to the next list, which was, where is it? It was my top 10 games of 2015. 
And in all honesty, I'm going to take a punt on this one. There are, there's definitely opportunity. There's still chances that this thing might shift. It might change. But I'm going to revisit it in April after we've gotten a chance to play a whole bunch more games that came out in 2015. It's just too early to say. So we're just going to leave that one aside for now and move on to the, what was the next one? The... Oh, my top 10 anticipated games for 2016. Now, that's another one I think I can go on ahead and skip because after I did 25 in um, in video form, I did another 50 or so on a previous podcast. So I think... I've covered, like, you know, I've talked about 75 or so, 70 or so games that I'm excited about. And uh, let's see, let me scroll through here and see if there were anything that people said, hey, what about this? And I'm at this point officially not that interested or into it, or at least it doesn't make my top 70. Let's see, I'm looking through here. So far, I'm not really seeing very much. Nope. Oh, well, actually, there were a couple people who said, hey, what about game X, Y, or Z that you had done a run through for in the previous year? Like um, like agility or what have you. And you know what? To be fair, those are good ones. None of those are really going to be able to make it into my top 10 or my top 20 most excited solely because I've already played them. You know, I mean, that's that's a really big um, limiter. So, I mean, there are a lot of really good ones, and I have added them because the, the geek list in question, my 2016 games of interest, is crazy long now. I mean, heck, I talked about it earlier in this very podcast and added like another 30 or so. What was it? Another 20? I've forgotten now because I talked about that yesterday. But, um, you know, really, I don't think there, I, I need to go into this list very much because it's constantly updating. And if you ever have a question about, hey, why aren't you excited about game X, Y, or Z, you can just go check out that geek list on Board Game Geek. And if you can't find it, well, um, ah, what the heck, I'll, I'll put a link for it in the show notes. Let me make a note to myself to do that. The, the link to 2016 O interest. All right, let's move on. We're zipping through this, folks. Oh, making great time. I thought this was actually going to, was going to take up all the time, but instead it turned out it was the Q&A that was crazy. Anyway, though, so uh, that was anticipated games of 2016. Then, okay, we move on to top 10 video games. Now, in all honesty, this is one that Jen, I think, probably could talk about. Uh, you know, if she were to think about it a little bit. I mean, I'm sure she must have her own personal top 10 faves for covering video games. And she is now staring off into space... Okay, and she and she just said you probably couldn't hear because she's away from the camera. She just said, "You know what my favorite video game is? Let's see if I know, honey. Is your favorite video game of all time The Legend of Zelda: Link to the Past?" Oh, yeah. Whoa, she said, "Well, yes," as if I just guessed incorrectly. Okay, let me guess again, honey. Is your favorite video game of all time EverQuest? Yes. Yes, not well, yes, but yes. Oh, now she's she's hedging again. Apparently, she has something to say about this. I think I need to get a hot mic on her so she can uh, weigh in on this topic. Or she's on the other side of the couch. We have a ginormous couch. I am going to get the laptop off my lap, and I'm going to get up, and I'm going to scooch over to her so my mic is close to her because apparently... Hey, honey pie, what are your favorite games of all times? Vidya games. Okay, well, I'm not going to rank them. She's not going to rank them, folks. Nope. This is the first thing that comes to mind. Yep. Cookies and cream. Cookie and cream. That was on my list. I genuinely, cookie and cream. Yeah. You remember it that well. I mean, because we, we played it years ago. I we know. played it in Texas, I think. I know, but it was such fun. 
Yep, and you still remember it to this day. Amazing fun. Yep. Okay. Well, there, there's a uh, that is totally honestly, I wouldn't have thought. I thought that was all me. I wouldn't have thought you would have remembered it, but she remembers it. So that's another vote it was for cookie and cream. Together and getting through fun puzzles and stuff. Yes, it was awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, and it was cute and it was adorable. Yes. Yep. Pitfall, Harry. <laughs> okay, I had prefaced my top ten list of video games by saying I could not list any of my own, well, any of the ones I did. You can't, but I can. All right, well, Jen's breaking the rules, and Pitfall Harry, is, or actually it's not, originally it was supposed to be called Pitfall Harry, but we were told to change the name. We couldn't name it that, so we had to call it Pitfall the Lost Expedition. But Jen knows it by its real name, Pitfall Harry. <laughs> yeah. So that is, that is in your favorite video games of all time. I love all of the equipment and how everything you can use it to change. It's very Zelda-like mm-hmm. that way. Oh, yes. Yeah, so it was it was my chance to make a Zelda game, basically. Well, then that's why I like it. Uh-huh. I like the Zelda. Do you like the fact that inside the big tree of life, if you go inside and you look over in a little corner, you can find somebody carved onto the tree, um, D plus J? Is it D plus J? <laughs> yeah. It, 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 no, no, no. It was D. It was Duck plus J. It, d- yeah. Jen's uh, nickname for me is Duck. That's what she calls me. So it was. I put in a little... I had um, Alan, our lead artist, sneak in a little... Uh, you know, Valentine heart thing for her. In the shipping game, anybody can go into the big gigantic tree and go into the trunk. And when you're inside, if you look around, you can find uh, my little love message to Jen. Of course I'd love that. Yeah, but that's not why it's one of your favorite games of all time. You genuinely like it for the I, gameplay. I love it for the gameplay. All right. I love the equipment belt and all the stuff that was on it. That is impressive. So, I mean, yeah. I'm very proud of that game. I'm, I'm very, very fond of it. But Jen, even more so. Yep. So what else? Um, I also really liked the, um, the Blanca and... Ryu game. <laughs> we used to play Street Fighter 2 on the Super Nintendo a lot back in the day. In fact, actually, Street Fighter 2, not Championship Edition, not Turbo, not just straight Street Fighter 2 came very, very close to making my list as well, I have to admit. Um, and not the arcade game, but the Super Nintendo Edition. Because, man, when that came out, that was transformative. That was really one of the first video games that truly almost caught up with the arcade feel at home. And Jen and I, we played that thing to death. We did. I, but I don't we understand why. Um, I don't know. I, it wouldn't strike me as something you would want to play. No, but I was young. You, she was young. She was a different woman back then. <laughs> she was a young woman. Maybe I was just getting all my aggressions out. Yep. I always played Chun-Li. She always played Blanca. Yeah, always Blanca. Yeah, she never really bothered to learn, you know, because Blanca, Blanca and Guile were arguably, you know, easier characters to play because they didn't really have, you didn't have to roll. It was just charge moves. All their stuff was charge moves. Chun-Li was kind of the same, although I was pretty good with all the characters, except I could never really get very good with um, the Russian Zangief. Man, there were some guys at work. This was back when I was working at Nintendo. You know, I, I would play this game, we would play this game for hours on the weekend, and then I would play it for hours during the week because everybody at Nintendo, at the, at the call center, at lunch, we had an arcade cabinet set up, but it was with a Super Nintendo version of, of Street Fighter, and it was in the smoker's lounge, I remember. And all the cool guys and girls had to go into the smoker's lounge to play it. So, I, I don't know, I probably... Uh, did my lungs some damage playing it. But man, we played that thing to death. And everybody knew I was the best Chun-Li player in all of Nintendo North America <laughs> by far. You know, I mean, because, you know, back in, she was tough to play with. She had no projectiles. And, um, you know, most of her main moves could be countered by dragon punches or um, what's Guile's scissor kick thing. Um, but, you know, I could stand my own. I could, I could go toe-to-toe with anybody. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, sorry, honey. That's me talking about it. Do you have anything else to say? Um, no, I think those are, my, those are my favorite games. Okay. Well, you know what? I think I'm going to have to stop right there because 
I can smell gasoline. Yep, so Jenna's going to say that. So um, we'll be right back, folks. There's a bit of a gasoline emergency outside. So please hold on. We'll be right back for the rest of the top tens. Okay, here, everybody. Gasoline fume disaster averted. Phew. Now we can go back to the top 10, although I imagine there's probably a few of you wondering, what, what, why, what? So basically, well, it's super duper duper windy today. There's a huge windstorm, which is always gents in my favorite time in Malta when the wind is coming in from the north and just creating huge, gigantic, almost sometimes 20 foot tall waves that just crash into Schwaney Bay here. So we really, really love that. But one problem with it is our poor little scooter... Well, we used to leave it out in the winter on these windy days, and a big enough gust of wind would knock it over, completely knock it over. And we've actually had to go through, I think, two brake calipers and a smashed, one smashed window. And I mean, mirror. Or, yeah, not mirror. Or, yeah, mirror, not window, because of course you don't have windows on a scooter. And uh, so after that, we started bringing it inside so that it can be in the lobby because, of course, it'll, it'll be fine. And we have a big lobby here in this apartment complex. And so uh, Jen had me bring it in this morning, but forgot that a couple of days ago I went into town and got it filled up. And for some reason, when we get the scooter freshly filled up, if it's too filled up, which I didn't think it was too filled up, but whatevs, apparently it was too filled up, it starts emitting gasoline fumes, and they build up in our little lobby, and it had gotten so bad, and it's only been out there for like two or hours or so, two or three hours, that we could actually smell it coming in through our door, and like, oh no, that means it's coming through all the doors. Now, of course, it's not that big a deal, because there's only one other family that lives here in this apartment building full-time, so that's quite nice, but still... That's that's bad. So we just had to go get the scooter back out. And now the windstorm is still going on, but we have lashed it to um, our front railing on our little patio so that hopefully it won't get knocked over in the wind. And we have significant, we've successfully aired everything out and everything is back to normal and we can continue. And Jen said she, she was done talking about video games, I think. Yeah, she really couldn't think of anything else off the top of her head. So you got a little bit of feedback from there. As for questions, well, you know, not surprisingly, this video got a few more hits than most of my top tens and, you know, continues to have more people watch it because it's about video games instead of board games. Go figure. A bunch of people asked me, seeing as how I put Elite Beat Agents at the top, spoiler alert, um, what about other rhythm games? You know, what about Guitar Man? What about, um, um, oh, uh... Uh, Busta Groove, and you know, I've played them all. I've played Busta Groove, I've played Samba de Amigo, I've played that um, Donkey Kong Conga game, I've played um, several different iterations of Dance Dance Revolution, Um, Guitar Hero, uh, um, you know, uh, Rockstar or Rock Band, all of them. Played them all, absolutely love, love, love rhythm music games. And actually, it's interesting, one person pointed out, because hey, if you love... Be, uh, you know, Leap Beat Agents, or I mean, yeah, Leap Beat Agents. You should check out a, a program called OSU. OSU. I did a search for it, and apparent, and basically, it's a uh, a little program that 100% replicates how Elite Beat Agents works. And there is a huge community going back for years, thousands of people who are making new Elite Beat Agent beat maps for pretty much every song in existence. And so, ever since somebody told me about that, I have burned quite a few hours jamming out to. 
all my favorite songs. It's been absolutely amazing. Um, quite frankly, strictly speaking, I think Osu should probably jump to the top of my favorite games of all time. But I'll still keep Elite Beat Agents because Osu certainly doesn't have the emotional content, um, you know, and, and the one, the fun storytelling and all of that. But Osu, OSU, just absolutely amazing. I fell in love with it. So thank you. Let's see. Let's see if I can find who recommended it. Oh yeah. Uh, Mac Mac OX, Mac Mac Ox suggested it. Thank you, Mac Mac Ox. You have improved the quality of my life. Um, oh, wait, no, no. It was, uh, no, no, that's, no, it was Mick Holst. Mick Holst who suggested it. Mick, thank you very, very much. Fantastic stuff. Absolutely love it. Uh, let's see, and people asked about other stuff too, like uh, what about point and click adventure games? You know, and yeah, there were some. Jen and I, we used to play quite a few of those back in the day, uh, LucasArts era ones. You know, uh, the the Atlantis one and Full Throttle, and Full Throttle was by far the best of of all the point and click adventure games we ever played. Full Throttle was phenomenal. Jen and I loved it. You know, better than um, Maniac Mansion or all the other ones. But still, I, I don't think any point and click adventure game could actually make it onto my top games of all time because they are just you know you play them once and that's it. So uh, you know. Yeah, I don't know. I, I do certainly enjoy... We do love Time Stories, though, the board game version of a point-and-click adventure. Let's see here. Oh, and uh, thank you very much for uh, folks who did actually do shout-outs to Brink. Yes, it would... I don't know if it'd make my number one game of all time, but I'm very proud of that game, and I still enjoy playing it to this day. Oh, what a sad story. But um, There. Curse you, Bethesda. Um, speaking of which, some people asked about, hey, what about, you know, the big Bethesda games, you know, your Fallouts or your Oblivions and whatnot. And, you know, those are nice games. I mean, no, 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 I'm going to take that back. Those are not nice games. I'm not particularly, I've never really found myself getting into them. I mean, the original Elder Scrolls at the time, I thought, wow, this is really amazing. And, you know, really none of the new ones have done anything that Elder Scrolls didn't do. They just look prettier and prettier and prettier and prettier. But Elder Scrolls did all of that huge, you know, expansive world stuff. And that was... Was amazing at the time and of course you know oblivion is amazing and all those but uh i don't know they're so dead they're just so lifeless uh you know what we were trying to do um you know me and, and the team i worked with on fable 2 was kind of the antithesis of that trying to create worlds that were full of life and not just randomly generated life but life that was actually created by human hands um you know and, and that's not to be disparaging i mean the teams that work on those bethesda things i mean they're amazing and what they do are phenomenal i understand why people can throw hundreds of hours into them but to me they've always felt just very rote and mechanical <clears throat> you know never mind they all have terrible voice acting i mean how can you get make linda car or suddenly a terrible voice actor. She's amazing. But it's, um, you know, other, they're, they're technical tour de forces, and I'm amazed by them, but I've never really found myself enjoying them. I mean, to this day, I'd rather play Star Control 2, which has that sense of infinite exploration and expansion because everything about Star Control 2 feels like it was touched by a designer's hand, feels like it was made for me, as opposed to something that just went through some kind of game generation algorithm, which is so often the case with those feel like. And again, that's not fair. I know there's a lot of really cool quest design in them as well. I've played them, don't get me wrong, but they just don't really pull me in. Um, somebody asked about Ultima Online. Hey, why, you know, why Asheron's Call, not Ultima Online? Simply put, I did not have a PC that could run Ultima Online at the time. I, maybe if I did, maybe it would have made my list. I know it was amazing. I'm, uh, all the things it did were so far ahead of its time, even to this day. But yeah, I didn't have a PC. Actually, speaking of which, 
my history of video games really kind of defined how a lot of this list worked. Because people were also asking, hey, what about Super Metroid? What about um, Secrets of Mana? What about some of uh, our Killer Instinct or Donkey Kong Country? You know, some of like the biggest highlights of the Super Nintendo, of, of the latter part of the 16-bit era. Because it seemed like, I mean, there was a noticeable lack of those on my list. That's in part because my history of video games starts out in the 70s when my parents bought a copy of Pong. I think it was a Sears, a machine from Sears, and I fell in love with it immediately because Pong was the first thing in my life that I was actually better at than my dad. And that was a transformative experience because my dad was a god at that point. You know, he could do anything, I couldn't do anything. He was smarter than me, he was better than me in every way, but I could beat him easily, not even breaking a sweat in Pong. And you know, and that was very, very empowering for young little whatever I must have been, four-year-old Rado, five-year-old Rado, six-year-old, something like that. It was in Knight's Landing, I remember. So that must have been five or six years old, I think. So, started with Pong, and uh, you know, then I, I remember all throughout my childhood, I always had one of those little Mattel games, you know, those baseball, football ones. Not that I like sports at all, but I played those things to death. Um, spent tons of time in the arcades, played tons. Gauntlet almost made the list, but I had to give it to Robotron. Robotron got so much more love and attention, and Robotron still has legs to this day. Whereas Gauntlet, well, actually, one of the things that was great about Gauntlet is my mom would try and play it with me and my brother, which was awesome, and I have a lot of fond memories about that. But still, uh, not quite enough to make the top 10. And so, you know, played a lot of arcade games. Had an Atari 2600, did not have a uh, ColecoVision, did not have an Odyssey, did not have an Intellivision. I wanted all of those machines, but I had an Atari 2600. And um, while I had it, that was when we were living on the boat. And I had to buy all my own video games. And I was working as a garbage man uh, in the marina we lived in, which was really, really cool because I was 12 years old and I was driving around a pickup truck picking up barrels of garbage and burning them in an incinerator. It was absolutely awesome. Completely unsupervised. Um, it was a different time. And I made, I think I made $5 a week doing that. $1 a day. And uh, it was enough for me to be able to buy one cartridge every month. So Chopper Command, Adventure, so many great, wonderful games, but still, I mean, I, 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 just nostalgia alone can't put them on any of those on my top 10. But um, after the crash, which we talked about earlier, um, basically, I ended up tra- I mean, migrating over to my Texas Instruments 99-4A. As Jen pointed out, um, likes to rub it in, she had a Commodore 64, like all the cool kids, but my folks, they bought the TI because Bill Cosby was the the uh, celebrity spokesman for it on TV. So that's why they bought it. And don't get me wrong, I loved that machine. I learned how to program uh, basic and then extended basic. And then for whatever reason, I jumped straight to assembler. Um, you know, I had a, assembly for my TI, and I learned it well enough to make a really simple kind of, not Pong, because it only had one control. I just used ASCII characters to move the Pong paddle and move an asterisk around and bounce around. But uh, that's as far as I took it. But yeah, there were a lot of fun games there, um, but more, none more so. This almost made my list, Tunnels of Doom, which is a phenomenal game. Um, you know, kind of a watershed moment. Really, really, uh, you know, cool with all these randomly generated dungeons, all these different um, parties you could mix and match. I mean, a really great dungeon delving adventure. Absolutely delightful. Um, I can't say it holds up because, man, it sure is ugly. But I did not mind not having access to the Ultimas of the world because Tunnels of Doom rocked the house. But anyway, so I had that. And then eventually in high school, we got a... uh, Actually, 
No, throughout high school, I did not have a video game machine. My friend Trevor did. So I got to play a few NES games. But when I eventually went to college and got the job at Nintendo, that's when I got an NES and then later on a Super NES. And I never had the Sega Master System, but I did have a Genesis. Oh, Jen would like to throw out Sonic. Sonic is a great game. It's never going to make my top ten. I mean, yeah, it was wonderful. It was very innovative. You know, obviously spawned countless copycats. Um, Apparently makes Jen's favorites of all time. But, I mean, to me, I thought it was... To me, it, it was all Flash. Mario was substance. Sonic was Flash. You have to understand, at that time, I was a Nintendo employee. And so I was a pretty hardcore Nintendo fanboy. Yes, I appreciate Sonic. I thought it was very, very impressive. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it couldn't touch Super Mario World, let alone Super Mario 3. And, and I think that's still true to this day. I mean, Sonic is a great game, but it was, it was more, almost more of a gimmick game, really, when it boils right down to it. <gasps> Gasp, how dare I? How dare I? Well, I said it. Um, but yeah, I, I had to, oh, another one almost made my list. I thought long and hard for my old, um, TurboGrafx-16, which I had a TurboGrafx-16, and then I also had the TurboGrafx Express, the little handheld one. Man, I carried that thing with me everywhere. It burned through batteries so bad, but I loved Military Madness on that game. That was another phenomenal game. I played that thing to death. I still remember, this is when we were living in a little blue house in Seattle. Um, every Sunday, I would just play that thing for hours in the morning while Jen would read the Sunday paper. It was good times. And uh, But anyway... Eventually, as mentioned earlier in this very podcast, I got fired from Nintendo. And then I said, you are dead to me, Nintendo. And I immediately sold um, my, my, I think I didn't have an NES at that point. I sold my Super NES. I sold all my games. There was basically a, a pawn shop. That I, you know, I got rid of them all just to make because because we needed the money. I mean, we were a little bit worried. So first thing, okay, all these consoles, they're gone, 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 gone. And eventually, I got another job. It was no big deal. Um, but that's when I got into PC gaming. So throughout all that time, I mean, I, you know, I, I missed early PC gaming because I had a TI 994A, and then I missed um, you know kind of that golden era because that's when I was hardcore into consoles, and I I didn't have a PC. We did literally didn't have a computer. The internet didn't exist. None of that stuff. So that's when I was hardcore. But then after I got fired from Nintendo and consoles were dead to me, I put them in my rearview mirror. We bought a, I remember a 386 DLC from a local computer shop, and that's when I got hardcore. And you know what a perfect time to get into PC games. You know with X-Wing and TIE Fighter and, you know, all those great LucasArts point-and-click adventure games and Star Control 2. Man, I mean, I had friends. I had Pat from, remember Patrick, honey? Um, Pat, who was still working in Nintendo, he would come over to our house because, you know, not all my friends had computers. People couldn't afford. Not everybody had a computer back then. They were in expensive things, though. They were still a luxury. Um, and so Pat would come over every and he and I, we would devour Star Control. I mean, having all the maps and writing on the maps and taking notes and, oh, man, that was so much fun. Fun. Um, so I, I, I was a Mac girl. Um, Jen, of course, at that point was working on a Mac. She would have nothing to do with the PC. Look, honey, Windows, Windows three point one is great. You don't need a stupid Mac. Oh, that's right. That's what it was. Because um, um, you know, once I'd gotten a job and we were okay, we're going to buy a computer. Jen insisted on buying a Mac. I insisted on buying a PC because I knew that's where the games were. <laughs> and um, Jen's like, but she only knew a Mac because she had one when she was doing graphic design at work because she was a graphic designer at that point and didn't know her way. And I, honey, trust me, Windows three one will be fine you'll be and she was fine it was no problem and so we had so much fun playing so many wonderful pc games 
But then, um, when did I get out? You know, and then, you know, it continued on. And actually, yeah, PC gaming never really stopped, although it kind of waned. But, you know, got into EverQuest and then Asheron's Call, as I mentioned. Oh, gosh, what else? Oh, Diablo. Diablo, the first one. Not the second one and certainly not the third one. The first one almost came, came so close to making my list. It's probably an 11 or a 12. Uh, Diablo was phenomenal. Another transformative game. Hugely influential. Such an important breakthrough. Um, and, of course, Doom and um, a Descent. Oh, my God. The first true 3D game. The first game that introduced the world to WASD and, you know, made it standard. Mouse control because nobody played Doom with a mouse. Um, I mean, that was crazy talk. But, um, you know, or if anything, only the hardcore. But, yeah, so heavy. In, but then... Um, when I got a job as a video game developer, that's when I got back in the console games at the dawn of the PlayStation. And I, you know, like, so that's why I missed pretty much all of the latter part of the 16-bit era because I had literally burned a bridge. Or, it, you know, as far as I was concerned, it was dead to me. And so that's why I missed out on a lot of stuff. And I don't know if that's of any interest to anybody, but that's kind of like a brief, my brief history of Love Affair with video games. And, you know, that stuck around throughout the, uh, the you know, the PlayStation Era into PlayStation Game Box, you know, or you know, into the PlayStation Two Game Box, GameCube, Xbox, Xbox Three Hundred and Sixty, PlayStation Two, and then I discovered board games, and board games killed video games for me. And to this day, they still have. I mean, the last full game I played was Batman: Arkham Asylum. Uh, years and years and years ago, I finished that. I finished on hard mode, actually, which I was very proud of. And I haven't really been interested in video games since. Although Osu, and uh, so many people have mentioned it, it is worth mentioning. Um, I am definitely going to get Keep Talking and Nobody Explodes because I'm sure we're going to love it. And quite frankly, from everything I've seen about it, I think it'll probably, it has, ev- there's no doubt it'll make it into my top 10 and probably kick something out. But, um, and Jen just flashed the number three at me. I don't know why. Oh, we. Oh, yes, yeah, we had a Wii as well, and that was that was fun. Um, you know, all all of the the tactile stuff. I mean, heck, that's what I was trying to do with Pitfall Harry was trying to bring tactile gaming in. Um, but anyway, so enough about video games because this isn't a video game podcast; this is a board game podcast. There is one more top ten to talk about, and that is the one I just did a few days ago. Top ten expansions, and um, you know, several people have asked about, hey, what about? The Shadow, Shadow and Crossfire expansion. What about the one for Roll for the Galaxy? There's a lot of wonderful expansions. I mean, and you know, a lot of really good ones. The ones that didn't make the list, it didn't make them because they weren't awesome. They just didn't make them because, to my mind, they didn't change the game enough. For me, the best expansion, the best thing an expansion can do is really radically change the game um, because that's what I'm always looking for. I think I already mentioned this earlier in this podcast yesterday or maybe even earlier today before the gasoline potential explosion fumes emergency. Um, I do love getting to play new games. And I mean, there's one thing I love about an expansion is it, it's an excuse for me. Hey, I got We have to play this expansion, honey, so I can make a video for it. It's an excuse to get a game out and play it again for probably the first time in a year or two. So that's a nice thing. But as a general rule, I, I like learning new games more than I like expansions that just create more content. An expansion to be really special for me has to radically change the game. You know, almost make it a different game kind of thing. That's when expansions really um, click. And so that's why a lot of people mentioned a lot of really good expansions, but most more often than not, that's probably why they didn't make it. Because what they introduced to the game was neat or interesting, but didn't really, you know, made the game different, not necessarily better. But if it makes it different and better, that's my sweet spot. So that's just kind of a blanket thing to mention in response to all the various, well, what abouts that people mentioned. But 
uh, the one I do have to talk about at length is my very, very, and I knew people would be unhappy with it, but man, so much sturm und drang, so much hue and cry, so many angry words typed in response to my number one favorite board game expansion of all time, which if you haven't watched the video, spoilers. In fact, you know what? From now on, Everything from this point on for the rest of this podcast is going to be crazy, spoiler-heavy territory for Pandemic Legacy. So if you plan to play Pandemic Legacy and you don't want to have it spoiled, I would not want to spoil it for you. I would suggest please bow out now in. And you know, and I'll say, thanks for watching. Talk to you later. Say, thanks for listening. So long. Bye-bye and all that. And now please leave in five, four, three, two, one. Okay. From now on, the gloves are off. I'm going to talk about everything there is to talk about Pandemic Legacy because I need to. Here's the thing, and I guess I didn't really explain as well as I could have in the video itself, although most people are replying without even watching the video. But most people just reply because uh, they see the list and they blah, I am outraged. This is incorrect. You have mislabeled something. No! Nothing is more important than labels in the universe. Sorry, I'm exaggerating. But, I mean, it's amazing to me the amount of flack I have gotten because... I have classified an expansion as something different than what other people classify expansion as. And honestly, I don't even think that's the case. But people um, that, you know, I've gotten into so many packaging arguments over the last week or so, it's boggling to me. And every one of them comes down to, look, we are not arguing about anything other than packaging. You define uh, an expansion by the box it comes in. I define an expansion by what it does to the game. Does it expand the game? Yes. Then I don't care what box it comes in. And Pandemic Legacy totally expands Pandemic. But to be fair, I didn't explain how in the video. Because again, I didn't want to go heavy into spoilers in the video. So we're full on spoiler territory now. So here's the dealio. When you buy Pandemic Legacy, I will agree, it is not an expansion at that point. When you first open the box, it is a standalone game. It is Pandemic Legacy the game. Imagine I put air quotes around that whole thing. It's Pandemic Legacy the game. And that is what it is. It is not an expansion until you finish the campaign. Once you've made it through those 12 months and however many sessions it takes you to take, to, and the campaign is over, Pandemic the game disappears. It self-destructs. It goes away because it has a finite end. It is by design impossible to play Pandemic the Game a second time, not without buying a second copy of Pandemic Legacy. I believe everyone agrees with that. There, there, there's no, there, that, that, that's not a controversial statement. But here's where things get controversial. Yes, Pandemic the Game is over. Once the campaign is done... The contents of Pandemic Legacy morphs. What was Pandemic the Game now becomes, or Pandemic Legacy the Game now becomes Pandemic Legacy the Expansion. Because you have a choice. Once you finish that campaign, you can say, oh, well, that was really awesome. I really enjoyed it. Let's throw it away. Because you feel you have absolutely no use because the game is done. That is well, honestly, I feel bad for anybody who did that because they have just thrown away a phenomenal expansion for Pandemic. All of the stuff that comes in the box, the faded figures, the roadblocks, the military bases, the, um, the unfunded events you get to put on your city cards, the character relationships, the character traits, the character um, 
uh, scars, the fact that you now have a customized board that you and your group developed and designed yourself or evolved as a result, you have all these, um, you have this incredible treasure chest of awesome gameplay expansions that you can add to regular Pandemic. And it's so easy to do it. Some of them just plug in with literally no changes at all. You don't, if you bought Pandemic Legacy, you don't have to go out and buy Pandemic State of Emergency to have access to quarantines because you've got mini quarantines. They're fundamentally different than the quarantines you get in State of Emergency. And in fact, you could play a game of Pandemic introducing the State of Emergency quarantines, which are, you know, the big double ones, but you only get a few, and the Pandemic Legacy, which are like weak quarantines that only have a one side chip, but, um, but you have so many of them. Both of those things work fantastically. That is mini quarantines or whatever you want to call them from Pandemic Legacy are an expansion. They are one of eight different expansions that comes with Pandemic Legacy the expansion, which again, like I said, doesn't exist until you finish Pandemic Legacy the game. That's why Pandemic Legacy is so brilliant. It's two things in one box. It's a standalone game that is an amazing meta experience, but what it does is it's also an expansion creation tool where you get to create your own expansion. There is nothing stopping you after you finish Pandemic Legacy from taking your deck of customized city cards, which has whole kinds of new powers in it, like grenades and um, you know, uh, you know, hazmat suits and you know, I mean, all kinds of things. Some things that only work in certain circumstances. Some things that work just universally, uh, like uh, grassroots events. You know, all those things and replace. You know, or you, 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 you can, it's up to you. In the same way, hey, you know what? Let's play Pandemic today. Let's um, put in the virulent strain, but you know what? Let's put the virulent strain in and let's put our unfunded events from Pandemic Legacy in. Those two things work together brilliantly. You made the game harder with virulent strain. Now make it easier with unfunded events. And hey, while you're at it, um, um, put yourself up to legendary mode where you put seven epidemic cards in your pen in the uh, um, the city deck. No problem. Bring in um, characters from Pandemic Legacy who have superpowers with all the crazy cool stuff they can do with their um, relationships and all the traits you've put on them by playing your campaign. You can now play Pandemic and have a chance of winning in legendary because you've got these super characters. Or mix and match. Bring in your awesome medic that you have from Pandemic Legacy, don't bring in a medic you have from regular Pandemic. Replace that medic with the Pandemic Legacy medic. But um, you know what? If you have Pandemic Legacy, there are characters from the original Pandemic you don't have access to. So you can mix and match characters. That's what I'm saying. Every single element that if you threw away your Pandemic Legacy box, oh my God, you just threw away an awesome box full of great expansion content. Now, if you want to know how, like I said, some things, they just plug right in, like the super characters, the mini expansions. Some things require a little bit of tweaking. Like, for example, military bases. Now, of course, you can just build military bases. Hey, let's play regular Pandemic and let's have military bases because once you, have, once you build a military base, you can build um, um, roadblocks, which are an awesome thing. Hey, increase the difficulty. Go um, Again, go to legendary mode, but include roadblocks and military bases so you have a better chance of winning. You can totally do this, but here's the problem. Roadblocks... Uh, or military bases require those regions. So you've got a choice. Play um, on your Pandemic Legacy board 
your customized board that has all this, it, it, your, your legacy board itself is an expansion. In the same way that getting, I don't know, Ticket to Ride India is a cool expansion map that you can add to Ticket to Ride, Pandemic Legacy is a cool expansion map that you can add to Pandemic. Play on your regular Pandemic board, which doesn't have, you know, any cities that are rioting or fallen or stuff like that. Instead, play on that one with cool stuff from Pandemic Legacy or play on your Pandemic Legacy board, with, which has become this crazy maze that you have to navigate, um, which adds a new level of challenge for you. But if you find that too challenging, then bring in... I don't know, the super bug cards from Pandemic State of Emergency to offset the, the extra challenge you have to face because all the stuff works really well. But back to military bases. So if you want to use military bases on regular Pandemic Map instead of Pandemic Legacy Map because you don't want to deal with fallen cities because you, you, you want to mix and match things in a different way, here's a simple rule. If you're using them on a regular Pandemic board, say that when you put a military base on the board, since there are no regions... Instead, say that you can put a, um, a roadblock up to two cities away from that military base. And suddenly, you've got military bases and you've got roadblocks in regular pandemic. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. I would suggest one additional thing. If, you're, if you add military bases, effectively play such that everybody has the double agent trait, where, which basically allows you to travel between um, research stations and military bases, I think that's kind of necessary because, strictly speaking, military bases are, are significantly weaker than um, research bases. So to make them worthwhile, to, to pump them up a little bit, I, here's how Jen and I do it. We bring them into the regular map. We come up with the um, two-city-away rule which really means they could be up to three streets away. And um, we say that you can travel between them and regular, and you've got an awesome new expansion element that you could mix and match with, um, with uh, in, in the lab, that you could mix and match with the bioterrorist. Um, and, you know, because another thing, if you want to mix and match with the bioterrorist, I would say thematically it makes sense that a military ba- the bioterrorist cannot destroy a military base. So that's really cool. It adds extra depth. When you, if you play with the bioterrorist challenge, one of the things a bioterrorist can do is blow up your research stations, right? Hey, fight back. Instead of building research stations, build um, military bases, then put up roadblocks, and you make it hard for the bioterrorist to get around, and you can catch him easier, and the bioterrorist has a harder time destroying your stuff. That's awesome. What an amazing, cool expansion that you get from Pandemic Legacy. It's full of this kind of stuff. The trickiest thing to retrofit, um, you know, the, the search um, gameplay, also super duper easy. Um, I would say use the, pa- the patient zero one because that's kind of the most generic one. If you want to bring search mechanisms into regular Pandemic, say that you're going to do a search. You're, in addition to, you know, when you're setting up the board and you're infecting the world, the first infection card that you're going to play, um, mark that city with three cubes like always, but also mark it with the event tracker from Pandemic Legacy because that is the city, the first city that gets any cubes when you're playing Pandemic that um, is where Patient Zero is. And now you can go to that city and while you're doing everything else playing regular Pandemic, you can search for Patient Zero. What is the reward for finding Patient Zero? Well, um, you have to use a little bit of imagination here because, of course, um, regular Pandemic doesn't have variable, what do you call it, variable objectives. So how do you replicate that? Simple. If while playing with Patient Zero, if you successfully find Patient Zero, it's optional. You don't have to. But if you do, that's one less regular disease you have to cure. 
And so you could focus on trying to get all your yellow cards together, the curial disease. But hey, maybe we have a better chance of finding patient zero. And now we don't have to cure yellow. And I love that because probably my favorite thing in all of Pandemic Legacy, and when you're thinking about all the different expansions, all the different changes and ways that it added new stuff to Pandemic, the, the core Pandemic system, my favorite thing was variable objectives. That every time you played, it wasn't always, I must do these things. You have a choice. We could do this thing or we could do this thing. That was brilliant. That you only had to complete two out of three objectives. So I love bringing that into regular Pandemic. And that's what Citizen Zero or Patient Zero does. You bring him in, you say you got a find him in the very first infected city on the board and if you do your choice one of the other viruses doesn't have to be cured easy peasy and that is an awesome variant an awesome expansion module that you can turn on and you can mix and match that with hinterlands if you wanted you can mix and match that with um mutation easy um let's see what are the other ones most of them are easy like i said mini uh, you know, mini quarantines are easy. The souped up powered characters and the souped up powered city cards, those are easy. You just bring them in. Easy peasy. Um, the, the world map, if you want to use a customized uh, map that's, the, you know, the rioting map is basically what you'd call it. Use that instead of your regular map. And the only thing I would say is any, any cities at the end of your pandemic experience that were fallen you know, i.e. they were so bad that they have literally died. They are charred craters. Either because you know, you let them die or you nuked them either way. However, I can't remember. I said spoilers here. Um, if, if you, for every fallen city on your board, however many of them are, take the cards out of the infection deck that match those. Um, because you should consider those to be dead cities that they cannot be the place where infections start. They can still spread into there, but they can't start there. So that's a, uh, so do that. Um, you know, we, we, you know, any fallen cities, remove them from the infection deck. And then the other thing is ignore the um, friendly mutations um, because I think, I don't know, you could do those if you want, but I think those are too powerful in all honesty. So I would say ignore the mutation stickers you put on like, um, you know, don't have to use an action to cure this thing. You know, those things. Ignore those stickers. Heck, if you want, remove them from the board entirely. But I would keep them as a keepsake. But ignore those stickers. Pay attention to all the other stickers, the permanent roadblocks, the rioting, all that stuff, and um, take out any fallen cities. And you've got an awesome customized map that creates a very different pandemic experience than regular pandemic. It's no different than getting the um, Britannia map for Concordia. And it's the exact same gameplay, but it, ch it changes how the game plays because of the special rules. Or, you know, the uh, India map or what have you for Ticket to Ride. So that's really easy to bring in. The toughest thing to bring in, the one that requires the biggest leap, is Coda and the Faded Figures. But even still, that's super duper easy. Here's what you do. Um, before you set up the board, before you've even started seeding the board, pick one of the four colors of disease at random. Roll a die, draw a card, whatever you want to do. Just pick one of them at random. Say you picked red. Red, this time you're going to play, because you've chosen to bring Coda into the game, red is going to be the Coda color this time. It doesn't matter if it was Coda before. doesn't matter if you're playing on your regular Pandemic board or your Pandemic Legacy board. 
Coda is red. And what that means is, before you start playing, you take all your red cubes, because you're not going to use them now, put a red cube on every single red city, all 12 red cities on the board. This is the way that you mark them as faded. These are now faded cities, and whenever they um, get an infection, they create a faded figure rather than a regular figure. All the work, all the rules for faded figures and faded cities remains exactly the same. As re- nothing changes when you, whenever you draw um, a, a faded city from the infection deck or from the player deck, the, a faded figure goes on there. If faded spread into non-faded cities, put another one of your little red cubes to indicate that that's a faded city. So um, you know the faded can convert regular cities into faded cities. It can spread like wildfire, just like regular pandemic. So far, you have only changed one rule. You had to come up with a way to decide what is the faded color, and um, which, again, you, it's very easy to do. Just randomly pick a card, you know, pick randomly. Choose on purpose if you want. If you want, say, hey, you know what? Let's say North America is faded. Um, let's say it's North America zombie invasion. And so cover every blue city with a blue cube in North America and Europe, and those are considered faded cities. Now, at the beginning of the game, you have the opportunity to build um, vaccine stations, just like regular pandemic. Um, you have to pretend that you've already unlocked the ability to make the vaccine. So while you're playing, um, build a vaccine station, start picking up the vaccine, start fighting the, um, the, the faded if you want, but you don't have to because when you're playing with the faded, uh, your, the way you win changes. Because like regular Pandemic Legacy, you when the faded are out, you only have to cure the regular diseases. You don't have to cure the faded disease. Instead, you have to contain it. You have to control it. Maybe you'll get lucky and they won't bother you very much. You won't even bother making vaccine. Instead, you'll just try to cure the other ones. Um, but if you do need to build a vaccine factory, carry vaccine, you can inoculate titties. How do you inoculate titties? Well, you can't put an orange sticker anymore. So instead, take a faded figure and lay him face down on the city. So if you've got a city and there's a cube on it, um, now though, you know, when you, when you said red was your faded color, that red cube is no longer a virus cube. You cannot remove it. It cannot be removed from the board, just like a sticker can't be removed from the board. It represents faded, um, which means regular cubes don't go there. Faded go there. But if you inoculate it, and what you do is you take a faded figure, lay it face down next to that cube, it's inoculated now. That's the same thing. It replicates the functionality of putting an orange sticker on top of a green sticker. So nothing has to change about the rules. And you have brought the faded into regular pandemic. It works. It's a wonderful expansion because now you can mix the faded with in the lab. How does that work? Simple. Make sure before in the lab starts that you take out any sequence cards that have your faded color because you cannot collect those cubes anymore to work on sequencing. So if red is your faded color, remove all of the sequence cards that have red and you can't cure red. Boom. In the lab now works instantly, easily, effortlessly with Coda. So That's what I'm saying, folks. If you have finished Pandemic Legacy, don't throw the box away. Don't, um, you know, burn it in effigy. You know, um, don't hang it on the wall. You've got an awesome expansion. Arguably, for my money, the best expansion in board game history. Why? Because it's an expansion that you built, that you designed. An expansion that was the creation of you and that is a representation of the wonderful experience you had playing Pandemic Legacy the game. 
That's why it keeps giving. You go from Pandemic Legacy the Game to Pandemic Legacy the Expansion, and it's awesome. Now, if you'd like to know some more specifics, I've actually written up all these rules. They're super duper simple. It's on a thread on BoardGameGeek. There's a link for it in the show notes of this Again, it's spoiler. Well, of course, if you've gotten this far, I've pretty much spoiled everything about Pandemic Legacy. But go check out the thread if you want. It's just a, a sip. It's it's a page worth of rules. Most of them are super duper simple, and you've got an awesome expansion that you can add to regular Pandemic. And why wouldn't you? Why would you throw it away? Because you have a choice. You can consider Pandemic Legacy not to be an expansion like everybody else, which means once it's over, you might as well throw it away. Or you can be like me and Jen and consider it to be an expansion. And now you've got four expansions you can mix and match in Pandemic. And it makes Pandemic, well, for my money, the best game of all time. Um, but that's a whole other topic. But anyway, that's it, folks. I am done. Um, I think I'm done shouting. And uh, thank you for your patience on this. And I got nothing more. Do you have anything, honey, you'd like to say in passing? Nope. All right. Well, then thanks for listening, everybody. Talk to you later. So long. Bye-bye.